the expression from the music inspired me so much to take risks and it inspired damn near the whole rap game. Hello again, I'm Adam Unz. You may know me as the host of The Opus, and now I'm bringing my own show, The Spark Parade, to the Consequence Podcast Network. I speak with artists and creatives about the cultural artifacts that spark their personal interest and creativity, whether it's music, books, movies, video games, or any other kind of art. I've never spoke about it in this amount of detail. I'm suddenly going, oh my God, I'm blowing my own mind here, Christ. It's, it's actually a giant part of my life. By talking about the things we love, we share and discover insights into our personality and the things that drive us. It's just magic, really. I mean, frustrating and it makes some people angry, but I don't think anyone's ever done anything like it. I speak with people like Connor Robers, Phoenix's Thomas Mars, Chris Gethard, Helen Hong, Adrian Young, and more, so their sparks of inspiration can start a fire in you. I'm grateful for those who continue to put our history and who we are as a people in the forefront and make you see it. Find the Spark Parade wherever you get your podcasts. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome back to Filmography, a Consequence Podcast Network production. I'm Dominic Suzanne Mayer. I'm the film editor at Consequence of Sound, as well as the host of this particular program. And with that, I'd like to introduce my guests for this week. Hey, everybody. Uh, Blake Goebel here, the Michael Myers of uh, COS. I just won't die. And this is Michael Rothman, editor-in-chief and president of Consequence of Sound and you know, I am very happy to be sitting next to the Michael Myers of COS right now, um, and I won't shoot six times. So, oh, it's okay. It, it's the coat hanger that pisses me off the most. Oh, that's <laughs> just the worst. Right, <laughs> right in the eye. Right in the uh, eye. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> it's tough. Well, <laughs> thank you both of you for joining me for this, the second of our five episodes on the filmography of the master of horror, John Carpenter. For those of you listening at home, thank you as well. You can find us on Facebook slash Filmography Podcast. That's where we'll have the vast majority of our programming updates and future announcements. You can find me on Twitter at Mayer with any questions, comments, thoughts. You can also leave Filmography a review on iTunes, Podchaser, or wherever else you procure fine podcasts. We dearly do appreciate your reviews. They help more than you can imagine. But anyway, we're going to jump right into week two of Filmography John Carpenter, and this week we are talking Carpenter versus The Beyond. As seen through the <laughs> films, The Fog from 1980, 1984's Starman, 1986's Big Trouble in Little China, and 1988's They Live. We, we have a nice diverse array of films, but what's interesting is that where last week we spanned several decades in talking about not a, right up from Carpenter's first student feature to one of his least noble latter day offerings, we really span the entire filmography, whereas here we're going to be focusing exclusively on the 80s, widely known as the halcyon days of John Carpenter. So to bring us in... I want to pose the question to the two of you this week. How do you understand the way Carpenter sees the beyond, especially in an array of movies as diverse as these? Well, um, so Carpenter's notions of the beyond, first and foremost, I've always understood Carpenter has an interest in the hard to explain or the discomforting and disquieting um, space psychology the behavior of people how we understand literature and then this specific four set it's basically 
him trying to reconcile with forces beyond our control, magic, spirits, the beyond in the literal sense, as you're kind of saying, uh, in a, a, a number of different tones. And what's kind of funny about this is we run the gamut in terms of genre vibes and styles here like we start with the fog which is super earnest mysterious and frankly disquieting but then we just kind of roll into yeah fuck it it's they live and uh, those things that we didn't explain that, that we have trouble explaining we're just catching up to right now and frankly it's going to pervade society in a way that you really don't have a stake in at this point so whether it's beyond grasp of understanding in a comic sense or a philosophical fantastical sense like that's where carpenter comes at and that's his film school genre beats being like we can play with this notion in a bunch of different ways well what's interesting about these four films is that the way i always recognize a carpenter film is that they always seem to be in like one central location or at least is like peak films if you really think about it i mean halloween takes place mostly in you know across the street two houses you get the thing in the one ice space you know you have um, for, for example, like, like Escape from New York is localized pretty much in New York. With this, it's like the, 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 there's the whole town. There's the expansive you know, national sort of setting for Starman. And you know, with Big Trouble, it's like the whole city, but also the underbelly of the city. So it just keeps going. It seems like this never-ending thing. And then even with you know, They Live, it, it is the whole city again. And so it, it does kind of play into this idea of just you know, what are the forces that come into the city? What are the forces that come into, um, there is, there, there, it's not central location per se, but it, you are trapped still. And there is this like, sort of feeling of being trapped regardless, maybe with the exception of Starman, but not even because the Starman, they are trapped. They are, they're, they're surrounded by society. They're surrounded by the government agents as well. So I do think that there is this omnipresent force to all of four of these films that, you know, it seems to be sometimes it could be tangible sometimes it's not i think that carpenter seems to enjoy the intangibility you know when it's when you can't really kind of grasp it you can't really wrestle with it you can't really understand it and i think that he loves that that sort of unknown sometimes i mean look at michael myers for we haven't talked about michael myers yet but you know what makes that such an unnatural force is that you don't know and i think that you can kind of argue that with a lot of this here i mean we don't really even find out too much about who Starman is per se. He just happens to be this being. And granted, a lot of that isn't even really his because it was written by, you know, four or five other people. But, you know, it still kind of falls into that art. Hey, screenplay's got to get made for Oscar consideration sometime. But I know I, I love this omnipotent, <laughs> yeah. like, notion because all four of these movies, I, this is a super obvious crit, but, like, they're all dealing in the surreal people kind of reacting to these uh, forces beyond their control, whether it's militaristic and the alien is kind of the same most humanized person in mm -hmm. Starman, or it's ghost pirates in the most obvious sense, but there's still something so like, but what are the rules? Yeah. Why are you here? What is going on? We need to break this down, even though we never truly do. Well, and again, I think it's really interesting because last week we talked a little bit about the idea of intergalactic evil being directly tethered to human evil, mm -hmm. at least in the way that Carpenter perceived it in those films. And I think there's kind of an interesting inversion happening, as you've mentioned, Michael, in the way that a lot of these films ask people to react with things they cannot control. Whereas it was humanity visiting itself on other parts of the galaxy last week. Today, we're talking about films in which humanity is left completely out of control in a lot of respects, where we're trying to grapple with things we cannot grasp, that yeah. we cannot fully mm -hmm. 
you know, claim as our own. Because again, and we're going to talk about this more in a couple of weeks when we talk about Carpenter and his feelings on America and policing and concepts of that nature. But even in some of these films, there is a skepticism. Mm-hmm. I mean, particular they live is the extremely obvious example oh, here. But in all of these films, there is a little bit of cynicism and skepticism about governing bodies in one way or another, whether it's the town in the fog having like the same level of political skill and representation as the mayor in Jaws (laughs) or the literalisms of they live. In either case, you have this idea of humanity attempting to contain, control, discipline, things well beyond its control. And it's usually only by embracing how little control there is over any of this that change is affected in any of these films. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's what's so cool about They Live. Like, it's so politically cynical where the uh, the bum who used to be a bum and then became a bigwig within the organization is like, baby, this system has grown so far beyond your control, you don't even know what to do with it anymore. So it's, it's, it's almost like very much a movie that is still of the time of like, how do we fight the machine? Well, and we'll come back to it when we yeah, talk about yeah. that film at the end of the first half a little bit more. But there's an interesting line in They Live where the aforementioned bum says something to the effect of, Everybody's selling out all the time. And that's really interesting because apparently Carpenter himself took that line from something he was told in a production meeting in the 80s. And that was very much a shot at Hollywood as much as anything. This entire idea that, you know, you're you're going to cash in sooner or later. So you might cash might as well cash in for the winning team. I was going to say there is something to him taking a break for four years after they live. And we're talking about this notion of systems beyond our own control and him maybe potentially kind of like over breathing a little too heavily into his own frustrations and then going into memoirs of an invisible man in 1992, which is like a chop shop screenplay that Warner Brothers blacklisted for years. So he's I think there's a weird like there's almost a story or a narrative to these four movies beyond control. If you want to add that parenthetical, you start with the fog, which is very directorly envision based. Then you go into they live where he's trying desperately to make a crowd pleasing vision. If we were going to narrativize like these four movies over the course of a span, because Starman feels like a total like beyond Carpenter movie in the sense that it was not truly a Carpenter movie in the traditional sense. We said like hypothesizing nerds and frankly, there's nothing wrong with taking a paycheck at the end of the day. He said like the alien and they live, but um, (laughs) no, but he would say that himself. Yeah. I mean, he's not, he's not above paychecks at all. So, I mean, that's like literally what majority of his excuses, like when we, when we talked to him uh, about Halloween two for Christ's sake, he was just like, Hey man, you know, that was tough, but I got a, you know, a six pack and you know, it was hard work. It, it was hard work, but you know, it's a paycheck. So, um, and you know what, I'm going to actually take the six pack as my segue into talking about this week's films, because we're going to start with the fog. And one of the things I find most remarkable about the fog is the fact that 1980 was a very different America. And you can tell because not only are multiple people drinking a roadie throughout the movie during driving scenes, but everyone (laughs) in the movie, whether they're a shipsman, whether they're pretty much any professional in the movie, they're having a little drink. Yeah. Hell, it's right beside us. It's big, Al. It's a ship. It's a big ship. What? <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, that's like kind of the thing that you can almost also unify these four films is that they all seem to come from this sort of like blue collar everyman. You know, I mean, like, it's funny, like, Blake, I think you tweeted while you're watching They Live, like, when was the last time we watched a movie about, like, the homeless? Yeah. And that's honestly what I always think of They Live as. It's like, oh, yeah, it's like, you know, Carpenter's homeless movie. Because that's, it's such a unique, like, point of view to start from. But at the same time, you can kind of apply that with all of these movies. I mean, like, Jack Burton from, like, Big Trouble is, like, the blue-collar truck driver who has yeah, no idea yeah. what's going on. The Fog, Tom Atkins character, for the most part comes from i mean there seems to be some sort of like i mean he's got a beach house i think in the movie but like there's they they all seem to operate on like the kind of middle class like lower class america and especially even with like i mean starman like I was you gonna have, say he's an immigrant and a drifter if you want to like label him as such. Yeah, and you get to see sort of like the road experience in America. So they go across these areas that are often marginalized and forgotten about, you know, and that's kind of a place I think Carpenter seems to be comfortable in, in at least in, you know, maybe just these works, but also I think you kind of cross that over with the majority of his films. I mean, he's that seems to be where he loves to pull protagonists. Which is funny because he's like a total Howard Hawks film school brat, right? Oh, absolutely. Like he loves westerns. He mm-hmm. loves kind of the unidentified yet still kind of identified lower uh, uh, loner archetype. Mm-hmm. And that totally translates into like 1980s drifters and totally. kind of yeah. like homelessness as it were. Absolutely. And rolling into The Fog in 1980, then, in much the same way The we Fog roll itself the fog. rolls in. The Fog rolls into us, Dom. Let's be real <laughs> yeah, here. And the ghost pirates with it, as it were. But you I jump hope I had lemons. Let's to, be real. To that, to that exact point, though, we jump into the very much blue-collar environment of Antonio Bay, a Californian coastal town, very small. Um, pretty much everyone has a trade job. The local classic rock and jazz station operates out of a lighthouse and it it's a very sleepy innocuous town until the titular fog rolls in and with it again ghost pirates ghost pirates ghost pirates and have you guys driven up and down the uh pacific coast highway perchance can't just say i have sections, okay just sections it, of it yeah like so I, I i drove from uh what is it san francisco up to portland oregon oh, with my nice. wife like two years ago and i swear to god like it, it's like x-files crosses my mind and the fog crosses my mind like we're gonna get abducted or kidnapped <laughs> at a local tavern and it's all because of movies like the fog that totally embraces that like sleepy seaside mood absolutely or and it's, play and, misty for me i'm gonna die yeah. because i'm on the radio oh, uh, and there is like there is that inherent terror throughout the film yeah. of just the isolation of being in a beachside town it's the idea of if the threat comes from the water where do you go well even like where adrian barbeau's uh stevie wayne works i mean first off God, what a trek to get to that office. Could you imagine <laughs> leaving late at night and being like, well, got to go up these stairs. Like, but, um, you know, you have to be really athletic, but that there, there's just like even a disconnect for her when, you know, mm-hmm. I felt so much anxiety for her when it's just like, well, you have that one path to get up. This is such a perfect setup for you to be screwed over. And back again, where I was saying like that carpenter sort of setup where it's like, you are removed, you are far out. I mean, it's just, she, there it is would take you 40, only one miles to get yeah. to like a, a Taco Bell yeah. or like yeah. a proper gas station with a credit card out there, you know, <laughs> yeah. like, yeah. yeah. And one of the things I love about the fog, and this is kind of where I want to start our discussion is with the fact there is a ruthless efficiency to it that I think I would argue makes that setting all the more effective. Mm-hmm. Because one of the things I really love about the film is the way in which 
you know, the film doesn't screw around. Tom Atkins picks up Jamie Lee Curtis as a hitchhiker. They have a charmed evening together, and then they're part of the story. Mm -hmm. Boom. Adrian Barbeau is a DJ and a lighthouse. She has a son. Boom. There is no frivolous exposition there aside from one ghost story, which I love because it really sets the tone of the film as kind of like this cordial campfire story with grisly violence. That is so funny you say no frivolous exposition, though, because I would totally counter there is frivolous aesthetics and there is tone and mood that is like felt and slowly explored throughout this. Oh, absolutely. There's like a full 90 seconds at a gas station with a gas mysteriously pumping gas out during like the middle third of the opening credits i'm like damn you really just like you are absolutely right there's very very clean quick cuts to the narrative slash the way that they go about doing it is like by kind of maximizing the emptiness yeah well and i don't want something's got to happen so to acknowledge an elephant in the room 25 years after the fog was made it was then remade during the mid-aughts glut of PG-13 horror films. Starring uh, MVP uh, Tom Welling from uh, <laughs> Smallville. Revolution yeah. Studios, Scream Gems, uh, you do it. That movie still has like a 3.2 on IMDb. Not that we should take <laughs> too much stock on that platform, but oh my God. Yeah, but no, it came from, from it came from yeah. the PG-13 era of jump scare horror, which lasted most of that decade but has remarkably moved on with time but like many films of that era i ended up seeing it on a group date in high school and one of the things i remember about that version of the fog is just how bloodless and more to the point how lacking in fright it is Mm -hmm. and i mean i'm not exactly saying anything bold here by saying that the tom welling fog is not a great movie but at the same time it fundamentally misunderstands i would argue what makes the carpenter version so effective Mm -hmm. and such a standout even now which is that simplicity which then carries over into almost kind of the ruthless efficiency of the story because you really get you get it in three blocks you get this preamble watching the shipsmen die Mm -hmm. You get the rules of the six must die on the burning plank. And then you're left to wonder, okay, who are the next three going to be? It's a perfect horror movie hook. And there's not a lot of sidetracking for like the relationship between Atkins and Jamie Lee Curtis. There's not a lot of sidetracking at large. It is a quick 90 minutes on an effective hook. Get it? Because they they kill (laughs) with hooks. Yeah. Yeah. There we go. Um, Wait, explain that to me again. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that, they they kill people with a fisherman's hook, Blake. Right, right. I watched it a week ago. There you go. I, I watched They Live since then, and that kind of mute. No. <laughs> Got it. So we're all on the same page They now. actually kill with a, uh, a pre-timely um, uh, uh, DVD copy of Hook. Um, so they, they hold <laughs> They're digitally edited in. No. Um. So I – but honestly, that's something I really admire about the film is just the way in which – It's able to take what I would argue is a really well-drawn iteration of the seaside town. I think as much as anything, that dark blue that pervades as a visual palette, the film even looks dark blue in the daytime. And that's something I find really remarkable about is just that consistency of visual mood. And I think the simplicity and the speed with which it really jumps into the main story 
makes it a far more effective horror vehicle because there's no fat. There's no scene where you're going, when are we going to get back to the story now? Well, a lot of that's, you know, can be, you know, attributed to the fact that like Carpenter was still for the most part, like almost like a TV director and where there's not a lot of room for that, you know, especially in like 70s style television. I mean, like if you watch like someone's watching me, which you're going to be talking about later on in this, in this series, like that is a very lean, effective sort of thriller. And it kind of goes back to like the Hitchcock way. I mean, it's a, it's a total Hitchcock, Hitchcock, homage which you could say the same thing with like halloween and halloween is very lean also i mean it's like an 88 minute or 92 minute movie that just goes right you know cuts to the chase and with this like i do actually i agree like that it it is very you know it's very like um uh it gets to the points you know from point a to point b you know relatively quick but i do think that there is like some sort of spatial pacing here that you know as like blake had mentioned like they it takes its time in setting up an aesthetic that I think the aesthetic does a lot of the heavy lifting for the majority of the film, um, which is why, like, I think it's like lean on character, you know, for the most part, because like I've seen the, the fog so many times, like at this point, like, cause I just, I just love like falling asleep to this movie. There's just something again, it's, I don't know pleasing. if that's a compliment, but, no. <laughs> but like I, my, my thing is, yeah. is it, it, because it's very dreamy, but yes. the thing in, in a lot of that could be, you know, what we were just discussing with just setting up this small little sleepy town. But I am always shocked every time I watch it at the characters that I'm like, oh, yes, Tom Atkins is in this movie. Oh, yes, like Jamie Lee Curtis is in this movie. Oh, like I forgot her mother, Janet Lee, is in this movie. Like there's just there's something about this film that I once I finish it, like I just I absolutely forget about some of the characters. And I and I a part of me wonders if like that was intentional and that he really just wanted to make, and I know this is like a total David Wayne style joke. If you wanted to make the small town, the character, because that's what I get out of this. Like I always remember, you know, I don't even remember the deaths for most, for most of the part. I actually just remember exactly how the fog rolls in that campfire story, the, the, the idea that this is like a folklore come to life. And I feel like that's kind of what he capitalized on, you know, in the sense. It's funny so. you mentioned all those actors, Atkins, Adrian Barbeau, John Houseman off of an Oscar for the paper chase. And I just realized like this is a movie that could have easily, easily and genetically slided or slid into kitsch. Yeah, oh, we're totally. kind of like capitalizing on some of our our sort of quasi cliche horror names, and we're just gonna go for broke with the success. Because think about it, it's the sophomore slump of any director after a major hit. Mm-hmm. You have Mark Webb who makes a nice like novel <laughs> success with Five Hundred Days of Summer, then is upgraded into two hundred ninety million dollars of Spider Man, which mm-hmm. is fine and everything, but it's like bloat. It's all bloat here he's almost like stripping himself in the film school and yeah. trying to learn experiment like take the resources he's been given but not in any like uh obnoxiously showy way yeah. i was gonna say that's a, big trouble in little china i was no. gonna say <laughs> aside from the locational appeal and like the modestly increased scope i really like that point that it's not entirely dissimilar from halloween because it has a similar locational claustrophobia mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. even though the scope has been increased here to be an entire small town well what a lot of people forget with halloween and i'm sorry to keep bringing that up i'm literally staring at a doll of michael myers but um they because <laughs> we have four we, dolls we, I love this. By there the is way. A, there's a shitload of Halloween stuff here because we also record Halloweenies, a limited edition podcast that uh, goes one month. For those month. listening, there's also a gremlin spider on top of Rothman's head, and it's so distracting, and I love it. Love that was uh, given by Mel Castle, fellow loser club member. But um, <laughs> what people forget with Halloween is that that film is very driven by aesthetic, and if like even just the way that this the, that Dean Cundey shoots that film, also 
you know, it's not surprising that a lot of Halloween fans have made this like sort of fun fan theory that like the unnamed Jamie Lee, well, her name is Elizabeth Soley here, but she she's very like a very you know you could easily say that like she's Laurie Strode that has left left Haddonfield and you could totally connect the two because aesthetically they all look they, they both look very similar and that there's that blue that you mentioned that blue mm-hmm. and that that tone is something that I actually draw the most from Halloween um, because just if you look at like that scene with like the Myers like house when they go there it's the same blue and a lot of it's Dean Cundy right there yeah, but it's the twilight blue mm-hmm. of capturing like making something evocative in the dead of night yes. which is kind of hard to do visually yeah. to make the dead of night engaging yeah. I was gonna say like all night shots to me these days kind of look like the movie collateral like that omega yeah. genesis digital like grit and orange like fluorescent light yeah exactly and then you look at a movie like this where they actually it, it looks like silk it looks yes. like it looks like a actual true midnight blue like this movie is a good looking tuxedo in my opinion <laughs> i agree and again it's it's lean it's mean this is again this is to quote adaptation this is psychologically taught filmmaking but but it is <laughs> mom it, said <laughs> mom said it was psychologically taught but no it is it honestly is because again the film establishes the stakes there's not really an extraneous scene to be found in the entirety of the film. And overall, it eventually turns into this moral parable about the sins of the past. And mm-hmm. you even you get that stinger with Hal Holbrook's priest being dragged back to account for the sins of his forebears. But he's the sixth. Yeah. The story is over. There's not some hoary ending to try and open it up to secondary installments, which was really starting to become the fashion right around this oh, period of this horror. This year, like in, in 1980 for sure. I mean, because it's the same year I think like Friday the 13th kicks off too. I was literally looking up the release date of Friday the 13th because The Fog came out in February of 1980 and I think Friday yep, the 13th. May 1980. So three months later, you have the popularization <laughs> of the slasher. Well, in a different way from Halloween. Yeah. And you'd have... But, the simplification of the slasher, no, rather. Right. Yeah. But more relevantly here, you would also have the franchising of horror films, which we're st- still seeing to this day with our fifth Conjuring movie in theaters at the moment. If The Fog is a movie that sees Carpenter working in a mode that is very iconically Carpenter... Let's jump forward a few years to 1984 and Starman, which is a decidedly uncarpenter vehicle. As the Secretary General of the United Nations, an organization of 147 member states who represent almost all of the human inhabitants of the planet Earth, I send greetings. Now here you have a movie that was floating around as a screenplay, as Blake acknowledged a few minutes ago, for a number of years under a number of hands. It was delayed in production largely because two years prior, E.T. the Extraterrestrial had hit theaters and become the high, one of the highest grossing films of all time. Mm-hmm. So now you had a movie that was pretty thematically and, as we'll talk in a little bit, stylistically similar to E.T., um, Columbia held it for a number of years. The funniest thing is that Columbia Pictures turned down E.T. to keep the Starman script, which is one of those great what-if stories. Yeah. 
Wait, no, I remember. Yeah, I wrote about this in the uh, the John Carpenter dissector we did a couple of years ago. Like the, now the on consequence of sound. Now on consequence of sound. No, seriously, the genesis of this is ridiculous because it's totally one of those like it is a trend movie of the 1980s, the same way that like action movies looked a certain way after the Matrix or whatever. Yeah, and we can say that you know Starman might be the volcano to E.T.'s Dante's Peak, if you will, but at the same time. <laughs> You can absolutely make the argument that, you know, Starman is its own singular thing, partly because it is such a stark standout from the rest of Carpenter's filmography. Mm -hmm. We talked a little bit last week about how Dark Star is highly divergent, especially in comic sensibility from anything else he would ever go on to do. But by that same token... If nothing else, the political ennui of it is very Carpenter, even early on. Whereas Starman truly feels like an outlier in a lot of ways. Oh, it totally is. I mean, but at the same time, there's something to be said about the way he just... You can't... I mean, look, I know he wanted this to be a departure from him making, like, exploitive movies and all. But there's which still... Which we allow. Yeah, which is great. I mean, that's that's. I'm glad that he shakes it up. But, but at the same time, like he still shoots it like a Carpenter movie. So, I mean, when you watch this film, it's there's still sequences of this the, this movie, particularly when they're on the road, that just, and which is the majority of the movie, but, like, there, there's still sequences that you could just see the, his shot selections are still the same. So, it, in a sense, it's like, he doesn't have Dean Cundy here, but he also, I wouldn't even know if at the same time because I feel like it's very like the even the cinematography is very Dean Cundy with this. So I don't know. I like I, it's and I don't think thema- like and I guess thematically it's different because it's not as nihilistic as most of Carpenter's stuff. But because obviously this is a far more positive film. Um, but I I think he does it, drill that into like the kind of. The, maybe some of the government uh, sequences but again it's it's not really a story i mean this is but visually i think it is carpenter i think it's very in his dna for sure and we'll kind of jump back into that in the second half but i think thematically something that's really interesting is how it's very much from an era of et but preceding that close encounters as well this era when we were making movies about space for a brief few years that were actually really hopeful and again, optimistic about the possibilities of connecting with life in another universe. Now, eventually, like, there was a time when we were happy about it. There were all of those films I just named. Star Wars can be thrown into that as well, at least until Empire rolls around in any case. But after a while, we decided that Deep Space was terrifying, in no part because of Alien and Aliens and other so many films of the 80s about the horrors of Deep Space. We eventually made space into this scary, formidable thing. Nowadays, we make space films that reflect our anxieties about what will become of our own world in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Interstellar comes to mind in that respect directly. Whereas Mm -hmm. with Starman, you have this movie about the possibilities of bridging some of the gaps in basic human connection through connecting with life from another world. It's this strange, it feels strangely quaint in its way. Oh, and it's docile too, compared yeah. to the visceral, like, uh, kind of work that he'd done beforehand because he's so practiced in kind of bringing big shock moments. The most shocking thing in this movie is that, uh, that rotoscoping CG sequence at the beginning of the movie as like a baby morphs into a full grown man, which, you know, doesn't not get scary the older you get. But, uh, like, I don't know. I, 
I do find something kind of admirable about John Carpenter saying like, look, I know I'm getting a reputation. I would like to step outside myself for a second to, yes, this might be trendy, but it is something that I'm doing in earnest and in good faith with the intention of trying to see if I can make a movie that connects with general audiences in a way that isn't just like the stuff that you're kind of uh, making me out to be. And what's cool is this is still the one movie he made that actually got an Oscar nomination, which from a simple standpoint is like, Really? This is the one as opposed to all those good years of effects and music work and things like that. Granted, the Oscars will never love genre films in a no, true sense. But Jeff Bridges is kind of a nice, you know, boon for him in this business. Well, and there is like a rueful irony to the fact that the least Carpenter movie is the one that garnered a nomination. But honestly, like I yeah. I love the physicality of Bridges in this. I yeah. read that he studied footage of baby birds to model his performance, which is perfect. And if you look at the way he cranes his neck, oh, left yeah. Right awkwardly, yeah. yeah. There's the abs- that's the thing. There's this absolute disorientation and confusion of being in a human body, especially juxtaposed with that one moment of body horror at the beginning, which is basically yeah. everything disturbing about the curious case of Benjamin Button played <laughs> out in less than 60 seconds flat. And Karen Allen faints for damn good reason. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> There is something very like, uh, on a personal note, like it looks like claymation at certain points that is so squishy and textural that it does actually make me a little queasy at points. It Uh, does. Because again, we talked about last week in terms of practical filmmaking, how a lot of the effects works has a tactile quality to it. And I think in Starman, it's only in that one moment, really. But in that moment, you get so much out of watching this person form. It's not Cronenbergian in its way, even though it absolutely could be on paper. Because there's something really poignant about watching this thing struggle into a human body and instantly start to inhabit the same, like, anxieties of gangly physicality that a lot of people do as they develop throughout their lives it's a life in microcosm in so many words well it helps that it's juxtaposed against arguably one of the most peaceful openings of any carpenter film yeah i mean it all starts in this kind of like uh, you know to borrow that word that we just used for the fog uh, like the sleepy cabin and like some of these like portraits that he paints in here are like almost like a norman rockwell painting almost like it's just like that that one shot of like the living room where you can kind of see the 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 lake with the cabin and the forest and everything it just it's 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 almost very Bradbury esque too and so when you have it you're you're already kind of feeling like you're in like a wool blanket like Karen Allen this entire time so when you actually have this like thing come in I guess it's weird because like the perception that we have to your point Dom is that we you know our generation is so used to having aliens be like this dangerous like you know ominous being in a way you know at least with like from t- our teenagers on because I, I mean i grew up with like et and stuff like that so i got and this movie <laughs> uh, but at the same time like i don't know like for me i guess like the first impression whenever you see something come from like you know outer space there's this idea that oh this is gonna be an ominous thing like this guy is gonna form and he's going to attack or some some sort of thing but that's not the case and i don't i don't know like did you get that like if had you watched do you think if you watched the film not knowing the you know the premise and where jeff bridges is going to go like do you think do you get that feeling that he's going to be an ominous presence or do you think he's going to be so if i can jump i had actually had a conversation about a week ago with my wife about uh, this cliche in movies that i love and hate in equal measure Mm -hmm. the lone person in a room meditating thinking kind of um giving exposition without dialogue you see in a lot of Sundance movies, like a lot of young people being like, my life, without saying words for five <laughs> minutes and indie strings pluck in the background. But then you watch, and this is totally born out of 
Roman Israel from last year. I shit you not. Uh, there's a scene in the movie where Denzel Washington uh, starts working on legal documents, like from seven in the evening to three in the morning by himself. And it's a montage set to Pharaoh Sanders. And I'm like, this is super indulgent. But I get a lot about this man's like civil rights focus. I get a lot about this man's like precarious nature. I get a lot about how he has like guilt, how he has disappointments, how he still wants to do the right thing. And that was a good case of the cliche. Starman totally plays within that cliche. And that's what I get with the opening scene with Karen or sorry. Not Karen. No, it's uh, Karen Allen. Karen Allen. I was yeah. about to call her Karen Carpenter, uh, which is, <laughs> I was really, yeah. thank you. No, but when she's kind of alone to kind of like think, meditate, um, mourn, uh, kind of strategize, like there is something very quaint and like patient about it where I'm like, I'm willing to give her all the time she needs. It, it is like, yes, there is that ominous notion of night and loneliness, but also there is something kind of pleasing having stayed in enough cabins throughout a lifetime where it's like, actually, if you can kind of go step aside yourself or step outside yourself and think and feel, it's a great warm up. And what's kind of cool is like Carpenter doing this. He's using some of the same textural beats as he does in the fog, as you mentioned, Mm -hmm. but to, and it's really hard to put a finger on like to a more, um, a sympathetic end, a little more of a patient end, and weirdly romantic end. Like mm-hmm. this, this woman kind of alone to her thoughts. Well, and that's one of the things I I think was really remarkable, especially on revisiting. I I saw Starman once as a kid, and I hadn't watched it in a number of years. It's just how unabashedly sweet the central yes. relationship is yes. in a film where that could have gone wrong. So. So easily. Oh, You've absolutely. seen movies like this in the decades since, in fact, films like K-Pax, where the whole idea of... Um, oh, fuck that movie. Being, I didn't like it then. I don't like it now. Sorry. Anyway. <laughs> but no, it, there's so many films about, like, creatures from the other world trying to connect. And even... And I can say it with that intonation, and you know the kind of film I'm invoking. Something maudlin, something disingenuous. Phenomenon. Yes. <laughs> Michael. Um, yes. Um, the the plot twist is uh, he's not actually telekinetic. He's just dying of a tumor. Yeah. That was a weird movie to watch as a kid. Yeah, Neither here nor bit. there. Now, in the case of Starman, though, I really love the fact that Jeff Bridges, for all of his gangly physicality and all of the very performative aspects of it, because this is a performance mm-hmm. to the back mm-hmm. of the house. And, yeah. you know, it got an Oscar nomination, so it clearly resonated with the right audience in that respect. But it still feels genuine. It still feels mm-hmm. earnest. Yeah. For as high-pitched as it is, it still feels earned in a lot of ways. Well, because it's, I mean, it helps that you have the same sort of relationship that, I mean, for the most part, like this is a, an exact parallel to E.T. It's a more adult E.T. Instead of having, you know, a child who's dealing with divorce, you have a, a woman who's dealing with the death of her husband or boy, was it her husband or a boyfriend? I think it's the husband, right? Husband, I believe. Yeah, so, you know, a widow that's grieving and there's there is a romance here and and granted et there's a romance also because he has a a best friend that has to go and just in this that she's finally gotten some sort of semblance of what her husband was in a sense but at the end has to let him go and it comes from a place that's 
a little different than E.T., but not too dissimilar. It's just what you experience as a child and what you experience as an adult. And I think in a way that kind of helps. It's almost like there are spiritual connectings. Like there, there's a yeah. spiritual not connection. Not only that, the but like I, the older I get, the more sympathetic I am to the ending where he's like, uh, by the way, this is a detailed item for our baby that mm-hmm. I magically made new. And like there's a whole like minefield of politics like, whoa, 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 we did not agree to this. But at the same time, there's also like, there's something very simplistically touching about the notion of like lives come and go lives begin and end. Mm -hmm. It's kind of part of the natural cycle, but this is an opportunity to share love with another human being again, that while like is very, very dodgy and like a hard sell, I kind of am won over by it with like kind of the romantic sincerity and softness of the film overall. It gets you there just by the skin of its teeth on that moment. It does. And I think, one of the things that really strikes me is the way in which it's a love story and an an unabashed one at that, but it's a love story about two characters who never actually meet on screen in the film. And I think that's one of the things I find the most fascinating about it, because this Mm -hmm. is a love story between Karen Allen and a character that outside of some 16 millimeter films, we never actually meet. You have this physical representation and sure you have the story with this alien, Mm -hmm. but to your point, Mike, I would argue that this is actually a film about a widow coming to grips with mortality through this man who kind of allows her to do that. And there's something, especially grappling with our theme of the week and the beyond, there's something really touching about the way in which he uses, you know, a being from beyond death, but where he minds that for horror in almost every one of his other films here, he minds it for pathos instead. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's opportunity for continuations, memories, uh, both fantastical and humanistic, like, the memory of her husband will never die, but there is opportunity to share that that genetic feeling, that beyond comprehensible feeling of the love you uh, express towards another human being. He said like a dad about to cry. No, uh, <laughs> like it's, it's 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 a totally crazy, like hard to uh, articulate feeling. But there is something like very touching that Carpenter tapped into from this, which is funny as hell when you think of all the pictures you see him smoking on set. Like, yeah, the kids will love this. <laughs> well, and I so if we're talking about the balance between the humanistic and the fantastical, Starman is mostly humanism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But you jump down two more years to 1986 with Big Trouble in Little China, and that is nothing but the fantastical. Where does this go? Up. To his office, Lopan's office. It's cooler up there from, from there. We can... Do you have a gun, I hope? I have a knife. A knife? This guy's 12 feet tall! Seven. Hey, don't worry, I can handle him. I took something. I can see things no one else can see. Now, I recently just watched this with my girlfriend who had never seen it before. And the way I, you know, preface this film is that there is no other movie like this. Like, there is literally no other film that is... Uh, that you could pretty much list every goddamn genre to a movie and we- <laughs> like weld it into one thing. And, and I, I couldn't think of another film that would even be, that would even come close. Maybe Southland Hills in terms of just how crazy it melds genres together. But I, honestly, like that's, that's, that's honestly, I, I would say the biggest hallmark for me for this movie is that it is just so, it's just so unique. Like there's, there really is never been a movie like this other than I guess Bakaru Banzai, but that doesn't, that's, there's a reason for that. I'm still waiting for the crime leak by the way, but whatever. Uh, well, and I Peter think- Weller, if you hear us, <laughs> we've got a pitch for you. 
Well, one of the things I think is remarkable about Big Trouble in Little China, aside from the fact it exists at all and is just proof that studios <laughs> used to be a lot more permissive than they are nowadays. Yeah. Sure, fuck it. You got Russell, do it. <laughs> well, it's the fact that you have a movie that is essentially one long genre experiment. In a lot of ways, it's like a film that Shane Black would go on to write yeah. because it's, it's a movie. almost like a big inside joke in a lot of it is. it is too. Yeah, it totally is. So it's. I can't even really call it a fan theory because it's just an understood piece of lore about the film at this point. But one of the common readings for those of you listening at home of Big Trouble in Little China is that it's story of a trucker who stumbles into a mythical Chinatown conspiracy is really just a story about a side character in someone else's movie Mm -hmm. who is made the protagonist of that movie. And then big trouble in little China is that movie, which works in a few different respects because for one, it gives it the narrative cadence of a rail video game. Yes. In a lot of respects. Double dragon too. Like that, that is, it's literally double dragon too. No, but dude, there's totally tradition in this, like the accidental hero, like mm -hmm. Indiana Jones in certain instances just kind of like falls into quote fortune and glory. He literally falls into trouble in the middle movie or, sorry the second movie um or in the case of like james bond and goldfinger is not the person who saves the day at all he struggles to solve the bomb and then someone from the government comes in and switches it off for him and i love that cliche of like the hapless hero or kind of like the dipshit who just falls into this movie that's not his well and it's an amazing piece of casting because placing it in its context at 1986 kurt russell is a bona fide movie star not just for his collaborations with carpenter but he's also by this point a major comic name because he started Mm -hmm. mining his swaggering star persona for comic relief in a lot of movies overboard Exactly. And just remade this year. Oh, God, I forgot. What was the movie he did like two years prior with Robin Williams, The Best of Times, about like old high school dogs kind of going at each other? No, Russell has chops. And I think it was a either it was a Maslin or um, Darge's quote, and I could be making this up, or they could have been talking about Jeff Bridges, but I would argue the same. He's one of those actors who like you don't see him trying ever. Mm -hmm. And that's not a diss at all. Like he just kind of casually blends into whatever environment he's in with great success. Absolutely. And the joy of Jack Burton is him just being to go back to the video game example. Like when you're playing a story mode that lets you insert a custom character. (laughs) So it's just your goofy ass creation (laughs) hanging out in a story that otherwise does not acclimate to it in any way. It's like when I play pro wrestling games and you're just like, (laughs) it's like an established trio. And then this goofy dude I came up with, with half an hour of effort. That is big trouble in little China in a nutshell dramatically because it inserts Kurt Russell's Jack Burton, just a trucker in the Stallone from over the top tradition, even though this predates that classic by a year. My wife totally made that mistake when I was like, I got to watch Big Trouble in Little China before this podcast. She's like, didn't we just watch that Stallone movie a year ago? Like, no, 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 no. Totally different 80s trucker movie. Well, it's funny also because like Kurt Russell's lines, I I believe someone even like strung them all together on YouTube. They literally just, what? Who? Where? Are you going? No. Come on. Yeah, right. Are you... You get going. It's amazing. It's mostly, I actually took notice of that watching this. When you watch the film, all the drivers of the plot are not Kurt Russell. No. The plot happens. He stalls it. (laughs) Yeah, the plot just sort of happens to Kurt Russell in a way that very few films would ever use a protagonist. Mm -hmm. And it's really compelling in that respect. 
And then on top of it, it really seems like so the old quote around the series Orange is the New Black was the creator centering the show around Taylor Chapman's character Piper, the one white woman who's a key character in the show as a Trojan horse of sorts. Yeah. It was a way to get people to watch a prison series about not only systemic abuses, but also like cycles of poverty and the stories of women of color and a bunch of other things that we don't make pop culture about. That's all of a roundabout way of saying that in the same way, Carpenter uses Big Trouble in Little China, by and large, to shoehorn making a mystical wuxia film with 20th Century Fox's money by casting Kurt Russell in it and loosely making him a character. I love that you say wuxia movie when I was about to be like, you mean they snuck in a Hong Kong fooey cartoon that he was a big fan of? (laughs) No, like it, like it's totally rooted in like anime, kung fu movies, all sorts of like Asian pop culture that uh, like was not getting quite that level of mainstream attention in any way, which has its up and ups and downs. We can talk about in a second, because um, with a white male lead and a white male savior comes the problem of identification well, and identity politics. But that's a whole and that'll forever kind of, be the grind debate of big that's a whole other can of big China. trouble. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you, but. <laughs> I honestly, though, I, there is a debate to be had because on the one hand, it, it, it comes down to how much you privilege representation as an audience after a point, because there are characters who are granted absolute autonomy in this film. Yeah. I'm particularly thinking of Dennis Dune as Wang Chi oh, in yeah. this film, who is the absolutely capable protagonist mm-hmm. to Jack Burton's bumbling fool. Oh, dude, he was super cute and very likable and very charismatic for, for all analytical purposes. Yes. But at the same time, it raises the conversation of how much is this film celebrating and how much is this film trafficking in those kinds of cinematically ready bits of lore and mysticism, particularly when it's taking, by and large, a very, for lack of better phrasing, fetishistic approach to it. And bear in mind, this is literally one year before The Last Emperor, the best picture winner of 1987, which is a mass appeal, big budget movie about Chinese history uh, produced by American filmmakers among a bunch of different other countries. But then you have 20th Century Fox being like... How about we just play around with cliches and Orientalism? This isn't even the only film of its own year to press this note, however, because you also had Eddie Murphy in The Golden Child. Oh, shit. (laughs) That's right. And not only that. Eddie Murphy was originally going to be in this, I think, at one point. Really? Well, Carpenter was offered the chance to direct The Golden Child as well because he'd wanted to do something Kung Fu influenced Mm -hmm. for some time. And in fact, this film was rushed into production just so they could be golden child in the theaters right yeah because problem child or sorry golden child was a problem film from what i recall and both of these films were kind of like the subject of weird awkward productions what was going on with asian mysticism in 1986 well and carpenter himself remarked that it was odd beyond the point of just being written off as odd (laughs) that two of these films were rushed in simultaneously but It's very interesting because there is a sincerity to the film that I think is a big part of its cult following over time. But again, there is something definitely Orientalist about the way it portrays a lot of Chinatown, the way it portrays a lot of mysticism, the way that mysticism mostly involves characters looking like Mortal Kombat protagonists, which in fact, this film was an influence over the Mortal Kombat games, particularly... um, 
Lopan oh. was Shang Tsung, more or less, and then Raiden. the yeah, the elemental men all kind of came together influentially as Raiden. Mm-hmm. So the influence of Big Trouble in Little China is long. The problem comes in more so when you're playing around with these ideas of, you know, it becoming influential by aping its own influences that a lot of people stateside have never seen. And for what it's worth, wasn't this movie commercially not a big hit for 1986? compared no. to his other... $11 projects? million in 86, which wouldn't be good today and wasn't that much better then. I was going to say, because Starman was like the 30th highest grosser of its year, or something like that. I was just seeing him box office mojo. And like Carpenter was able to... like. To this day, Halloween has made, what, $90 million on a $300,000 budget, so... Well, it, I mean, Halloween made... It, like, when it first was released, mm-hmm. it was, like, $70 million worldwide uh, on, like, 300000 which he didn't make anything off of. Uh, that was that was just... Trankus International just ran away with that money. Wow. Uh, and so the, which is why he did Halloween 2 and was involved with Halloween 3, because he wanted to recoup the money that he was going to make on it. And that's why he did the writing for it, for Halloween 2. Um, and why he demanded $10 million for Halloween H20 in 98, because he was like, well, I want to get my money back. So <laughs> I guess finally he's getting that paycheck from Jason Blum, but... Um, that's so funny though yeah. like he he like hard lessons learned leading up to Big Trouble in Little China those kinds of risks that he tries to take with genre films like I, you look at the success of something like Stranger Things and the popularization mm-hmm. of like genre culture it, call it a hunch if Big Trouble in Little China were to come out in a 4th of July release date today with I don't know, fucking Chris Evans or something like that. It could be a modest hit, albeit the subject of about a billion thing pieces. Not to be that guy, but like it would be so unavoidable, right? Like, I mean, if you put enough effects in here and if you try to do it tongue in cheek with a little bit of camp, if which lo- this is. In a lot of respects, though, it's very much a film that could only exist of its time. And yeah. that's not just limited to the racial politics, though those are pretty up there. But just the sheer freewheeling nature of it to sort of boomerang back around to where we began. Quite literally, we don't turn out studio films like this anymore. We don't give our director this kind of fuck around money, even on a moderate, (laughs) modest budget. Because ten directors left with Final Cut, if I recall correctly. Yeah, Yeah. this is a strange, singular project by somebody who was a household name at the time it came out, but was by no stretch like a box office guarantee. And it was Carpenter being allowed to pursue a passion project that ended up burning him out to the point where by two years later, he's making movies independently again. Well, it's and he was also in a couple of situations like this early on. I mean, like he did Christine because he wanted to get back his name, you know, which is it's so weird to think now. But the thing obviously was a box office bomb. Uh, I mean, it didn't help that it came out around the same time that E.T. came out. But you know, at the time, it wasn't like a people didn't love the movie like they do it like now. And so he actually felt that he was in time out with the studios uh, and actually did Christine as a way to kind of like for comeuppance in a way, like to be able to like, well, I'm going to I'll get my I'll get my credit up again, which is why probably he was able to start doing these movies again shortly after. Mm. They're like, all right, well, you know. All right, well, I'll, I'll, I'll do big trouble, you know. Well, we'll and especially to follow. So if we're talking about Starman being a kinder, gentler carpenter, <laughs> we then have this hard left back into, okay, let me take yeah. the goodwill I got from this Oscar nominee and make one of the weirdest goddamn things I will ever put out. Because that's the other thing I want to hit. Big Trouble in Little China is a weird fucking it's movie. very weird, yeah. I mean, it's to a point where, you know, walk away for a minute. 
and then walk back into the room and you have no fucking clue what just happened in this movie. Because like, the beauty of it, are, and particularly I, mean. I love the pacing of the film because it's kind of breathless. And to go back to that video game example, it's very much every time you settle down and you think something has resolved itself, here's more weirdness. Well, there's also so much story. I mean, if you ever like wanted to follow along and just look at the synopsis that's all on, you know, on, on Wikipedia or IMDb or any of them, the just reading what happens from beginning to end of this movie will give you a headache. It, it, <laughs> there's just so much happening. There's so much mythology. There's it feels like it, it's like a collection of short stories wedged into one linear narrative, and it's just yeah. insane. The you you sequence... guys are making me feel better. They used to play this on Comedy Central, and yeah. I assume like the the broke neck kind of plotting of it was a, a function of editing on TV. I'm like, oh, there are monster effects. It's clearly a movie that was censored for TV. Then I, I watch it on DVD. Yeah. Then I finally watch it on a DVD, and it's like, nope, that's kind of this movie's yeah. mo, which is wacky. <laughs> hell well because honestly it's it's this film that is built out of not knowing what's going to round each corner which is exhilarating and frustrating in equal measure because on the one hand it's very much a film that's throwing everything at the wall to see if it sticks and i would say it's about a 70 30 split in favor of success the fact that we're still talking about it as a cult entity means that like some pretty big pieces sticked and i assume that biggest piece was that monkey in the truck or the monkey monster oh absolutely uh, oh, <laughs> I, I guess like you know again it's it's the video game angle is so important to me because you know i think back to all the nes side scrollers and you know you're playing a game and because you keep going and because you haven't died and you just keep pushing that stick you know right to just keep scrolling your character that literally feels like this movie too because i mean think back to again i I mentioned double dragon 2 just because that's my favorite nes game but um, I I think of just how insane that game is where every turn, whether it's an elevator or a ladder or a door, you the next level is just like, wait, how the hell did this exist? Like, where is this? Why is this here? So you almost do like as a viewer feel like Kurt Russell, too, in this movie, because you're just like, like, how the hell is any of this happening? What is going on in this thing? Why can't I just get to my truck? That well, and the best thing is that video game music in the movie yeah, for what it's worth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the best uh, part is that the prologue where you sort of get like something of an introduction to who <laughs> Jack Burton is and what he's about. That was studio notes. The original film began with Jack Burton just rolling into San Francisco to kick the story off. People were worried that audiences wouldn't be able to follow. And funnily enough, Carpenter was head of the curve because audiences couldn't follow but would later. Oh, at least we didn't get a narration like Blade Runner. Yeah, well, and especially like... (laughs) Especially when you have and a movie And it was the biggest that's... trouble I had in the littlest China I've ever been to. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Could you imagine a Kurt Russell doing a Deckard-esque uh, narration throughout this movie, though? Like, Which he ostensibly does by talking <laughs> on the CB. Jack Burton here, some wacky shit just happened. All right, let's the do a teaser and then go. Yeah. Which uh, I don't dislike because, again, he, he hard sells it. Like, yeah, yeah. But so... Two years is going to change a lot because we're in 1986 with Big Trouble in Little China and the eccentric weirdness of Carpenter working within the studio system. By 1988, he burns out on that same studio system. He wants to return to the independence and he ends up fucking around and making one of his most enduring films to date, They Live. You still don't get it, do you, boys? There ain't no countries anymore. No more good guys. They're running the whole show. They own everything, the whole goddamn planet. They can do whatever they want. What's wrong with having it good for a change? Now, they're going to let us have it good if we just help them. 
They're gonna leave us alone. Let us make some money. You can have a little taste of that good life, too. Now, I know you want it. Hell, everybody does. You do it to your own kind. What's the threat? We all sell out every day. Might as well be on the winning team. Which, you know... Here's here's the thing here's the thing with they live. Everyone's sighing. I can tell everyone has takes, so I'll just kick us off and we'll jump straight into the discussion. Mm-hmm. Keith David, lovely voice. They Love live They live is a movie about a man getting woke by putting on sunglasses that features one of the best fight scenes in cinematic history. Do not dispute me. And there's a lot that I so I'm, I already used the word idiosyncratic once in this episode, and I'm not say idiotic. And I'm not trying. I'm not trying to flex or anything, but I think there is something genuinely strange about They Live, even yeah. over perhaps any of these other films, because it is paced like no other movie I think I've ever watched. Scenes that should run on for maybe a second or two last minutes, yes. including the aforementioned fight. Scenes that seem essential to the story pass by so quickly that if you're not paying attention, you might miss them entirely. No, and this is one of those movies I was thinking about on the rewatch where it makes like all the seemingly right decisions, but done in a way or style that doesn't quite fit. Like the harmonica score to represent hard times is absolutely on point. Then you're like, but that's a weird digital crappy sounding yes. harmonica. That five minute, seven minute, 80 minute fight scene between <laughs> Roddy Piper and Keith David in the alley is like so beautifully perfect and how like overboard it goes. But the second it's done, you're like, oh shit, this totally should be parodied by South Park. It's so ridiculously out of place. Like it was great in the moment, but you know what this film reminds me of though? Tommy Wiseau's The Room. <laughs> In the in this in the for all the reasons that you described it, Dom. Because I did not they live her. I didn't I did not. <laughs> I did not chew bubble gum. I just kicked ass. Like Greg Sistero and uh Tommy just fighting in like the alley, just like and uh they live would be amazing. But I, but for those exact reasons, because when you watch this film, it is so like it's like he just reversed everything he learned in in like the last ten years of it, it you know of everything he had done with his his filmmaking because I mm-hmm. still will argue that seventy six to eighty six is peak is the is the best that of, you're gonna get from Carpenter and you can go and see the the external stuff outside it and enjoy you know different flavors here and there but from Assault to Big Trouble is mm-hmm. really where you're gonna get you know just the cream of the crop from him. Which is why I don't include this because this movie just there are some great moments in this just like there I would say well, I would argue for in the mouth of madness and for I even I even like uh, memoirs of an invisible man for in certain respects mouth but, of madness I think is a great late period but that's, I, I, that's I, an I IMO too. yeah yeah but but it's still there is still like faults to it and I would say sure. that they're, they're they're similar to this in that that sort of tightness and that sort of cohesion that he was able to do to such precision with like. Assault and Precinct Thirteen, mm-hmm. Halloween, the you know the, someone's watching me, um, the 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 fog even, it's just not here, and it's there's this sort of weird way where I just don't I, I don't know if he's just trying to be anarchic as a filmmaker and go against the norms, but it's it's kind of similar to what you were discussing last time in Ghosts of Mars where the 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 form is just so erratic 
The form is erratic, and I think it works a hell of a lot better here. I do not want to. Yeah. I don't want to draw any more parallels between they live and ghosts of Mars on this episode if we can avoid <laughs> no, it. No, no, I, 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 no, I, I get, brought so I, many notes from home. All right, but fine. I understand what you're saying at the same time because I, there is something that does not add up about they live. Yeah, for me, that ramshackle quality is really effective. I would argue, and this is again a matter of opinion and preference by large. Oh, I would but, even scale it back more simply. It's a short story expanded to a film. I, and there's I a lot of arid quality to yeah. it at points, but I, that's yeah. that's probably an oversimplification. Uh, I, I would agree to an end, but sure. I would also say that a lot of the primacy comes from the fact that nowadays, you know, we can sit and watch They Live as a 2018 audience, and we can... yeah. We can chortle all we want about how it's heavy-handed that it is blunt force in its themes. Heavy-handed, more like clench-fisted to oh, Keith God. David's face. Um, it is clench-fisted, specifically to the faces of Keith David yes, and Roddy Yes, this movie Piper. is the Arthur meme about Reaganomics, absolutely. <laughs> He's so mad about that damn... No, no, and it, like for what it's worth, it, it, this does actually... I think it it has a noble task trying to take the genre film to make a political statement. Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the 50s one did it. The Thing has some things to say about like Cold War primacy. And they live as making an attempt to be a genre statement film, which is so noble. Well, but it and just it's, stretches its, its shit so yeah, thin. It's just, but well, I, so yeah. if I want to push back a with little. With shotguns. Because it goes against conservative doctrine with shotguns, which is a total like I'm ripping off the Chicago Reader review from the time. But I was like, hey, wait a minute. Don't Reaganites like that kind of sort of thing he said like a tinfoil head but uh it's a weird kind of like juxtaposition i I have a question i have a question yes yeah for me other than the 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 punchline of seeing the homeless person being wealthy or you know living that sort of uh the the high life at the end doesn't it feel like after the fight after he finally sells keith david the film has no idea what to do for the next like maybe 45 minutes I just, I just feel like it, it just loses any sort of momentum at that point. It does. It, I wouldn't entirely disagree, but there's an implication that it kind of loses its rudder, and that's the part I want to disagree with at least a bit, mm-hmm. because I would argue that even though it is a little bit formless, go after to that point, location, at the final si- blow up, important MacGuffin satellite yeah. radio, exactly. But but, at the, but but the ride is worth it because of George Buck Flowers' whole speech about how they run the whole show. Well, and more to the That's point... the only thing that got me to the end, and I think that was actually pretty terrific. And I think even before then, I would argue, they live sort of morphs then from being a message film mm-hmm. in the direct sense into, in its own way, and this is the part that really affected me especially, so... To date this podcast very specifically, we were all preparing for this episode during the Brett Kavanaugh trial. <laughs> and I'm not just bringing it up to be topical, but because... That second half in particular really allows you to, through Roddy Piper, who we'll come back around to in a minute, I Mm -hmm. promise, it really kind of evokes that disoriented feeling that you get when you figure out the world is corrupt. Mm -hmm. And it then wrestles with the grander theme of, okay, you know the world's corrupt. What do you do? How do you do anything? How do you learn to exist in a world where you know this exists and there is nothing you can do about it? Yeah, but to your point, and this is this is just something that I that has to be brought up about with Carpenter, Mm -hmm. is that you are right. He is like that that sort of Howard Hawks style. He is so indebted to the past and, and with his own works in the, in, the, in the sense that like I mean literally every one of his films you could kind of tie back to some sort of film that clearly influenced sure. him and made that model this is in, this is Invasion of the Body Snatchers but my thing is with that is that that very argument that you, you're talking about like what do you do when you find out 
is what I love about Invasion of the Body Snatchers is because he, it's just it's just pandemonium at that point. It's just sure. chaos. Whereas with this one, I feel like he's trying he's trying to the fact that there there is a solution is the problem for me. Like it, it's like I it, and that's like what Carpenter kind of drills into this is because it's like he clearly I mean because at the end he does resolve to some to some extent. I would like to posit though, and this this is going to sound like a total backhanded compliment, but this is also kind of something I'll say about a three star movie like flaws, limitations, successes. This is a movie I would totally uh, show to thirteen year olds, and I, I'm being kind of sincere about this. It's like uh, Project X, the Matthew Broderick movie um, about monkeys. Yes, Roger Ebert wrote in his mo- uh, review in the '80s once, like this is the kind of movie I would love to show to teenagers because while anyone over the age of 21 will understand that animal abuse is awful, show it to a teenager and they will actually kind of get a broad concept of environmentalism and how to treat uh, other things. They Live is kind of like a perfect movie for someone like me to have seen at 13 on Monster Vision with real Roddy Piper interviews in 1999 and to realize that the system is corrupt and creepy and freaky because it's more understandable than the corrupt, uh, like, hard-fought system of all the presence men, which you have to be 18 to understand. This I, I don't mind platitudes yeah. and like polemics like this if they make some semblance of sense. Well, and I think they live functions very much on that on that spinal sensational mm-hmm. level, which is really where it works for me. And I think a lot of that you get from Roddy Piper's performance, which <laughs> time for a filmography hot take. I love Roddy Piper in this movie because he is a hapless fuck. <laughs> I love Roddy Piper in this movie because Roddy Piper does not seem to understand how good of a performance Roddy Piper is giving in They Live. Oh, he's great. And that means everything to the movie because the way in which he is a hot mulleted dupe who does not understand what's happening until it's far too late into the film because I, I legitimately took and then time. overcompensating when like so he basically is, is a freshman with a textbook. So not only that, it is 32 minutes into this 90-minute movie before the plot even really starts in earnest. Most of that first half hour Mm -hmm. is just Roddy Piper wandering around with his hobo satchel on his back to the tune of what sounds like Twin Peaks B-sides. And then, all of a sudden... You launch him into this very different movie where Piper doesn't seem to have a total handle on what he's doing, but somehow that haplessness really works in terms of creating what I would argue is one of Carpenter's great blue-collar heroes in the mold that we were talking about earlier in the show. Well, I think a lot of that stems from, you know, you could argue, and I agree, Blake, absolutely about the the, the enjoyment of what you can get from as, you know, a younger mm-hmm. point of view from when you're coming at it as an adult, for sure. Because I definitely enjoyed this film far more when I was in my teens and I was running movies left and right than I did now, where I'm just kind of like analyzing, be like, well, technically, but... I my, my my thing with this is that technically those sunglasses would be $180 <laughs> gargoyles. Clearly they wouldn't be in a box. For? Where would they get a producer to make these? <laughs> but, but, uh, yeah. but like the, the thing that's interesting about this that I see it from an adult point of view now is that this also, you know, have you how many of you have gone to L.A.? And you've like spent a lot of time in LA. 2012 was the last time I was there, yeah, and I was you, in Burbank. And from, that was funny. You met no, no. It are was you funny from you the Midwest though. Yeah, yeah. And you're from, from the Chicago. Midwest. I'm from I'm from South Florida. My dad's from like the New York area, or whatever. And Carpenter's a New York guy that went to Kent. He was from he lived in the Midwest with Kentucky and stuff like that. So 
I do feel like this movie is almost like sort of an homage mm-hmm. to that feeling of first coming to LA and being like, holy fuck, this is an alien world of sycophants <laughs> and total destructive personality. Oh, absolutely. Like, I spent 10 days you know. in Los Angeles last year and my biggest takeaway in that entire time was everyone here is hotter than me and I would probably blow my brains out if I had to stay here. Did I tell you I pulled a Woody Allen and stepped in a pool when I was in like Manhattan Beach with my wife and an old college friend of hers and I wasn't looking. I was also wearing a black button-up shirt in sunny like California, like an asshole and I just wasn't looking. There was a crosswalk over the pool, stick my foot in. Yes, now now I get it. Oh God, this is awful. Yeah, I mean, but I, but I, I that's rewatching it now. And having gone to you know to LA a couple of times you know in the last even the last few years, I, I want to go off on just a quick tangent. You know, the last time I was in uh, in LA, well, actually, the the one time before that, just covering a festival, was the first time I had never I didn't have a rental car, and uh, you know I just relied on Lyft. And there is something there's a much different LA that you see when you're not in your car and you're driving from place to place. Mm-hmm. You see the the sort of almost post apocalyptic wash that LA has, which is why I think so many apocalyptic films actually take place there because it is not only just an unforgiving city if you're not in the studio system, Mm -hmm. but it's an unforgiving city just in the way it's laid out because it appeals to an upper middle class to a very high, you know, upper class that whereas where everyone else is either marginalized or just treated like refuge. And I think that that's what this film absolutely gets about. Absolutely. And I want to go back to Blake's point that we brought up earlier in this half about the way in which this is a film about homeless and the way that mainstream Mm -hmm. films are not about homelessness in America. But beyond that, it captures very something very particular about L.A. homelessness, which even yeah. now, one of the things that floored me when I went out to Los Angeles is how prevalent it is there. And it makes sense, given that, you know, if if you have to live outside, you'd rather live in a warmer climate ostensibly. But there is something so jarring in that disconnect between, you know, the the prevalent homelessness in L.A. and then the like absolute upper 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 echelon privilege you can see on display yeah. 15 minutes away in a car spatially oh yeah at no, any I mean, given time honestly if we're t- i mean you go to the downtown area and then you go over to like skid row which is literally right there where the police stations are it looks like a set for a john carpenter movie i mean and not even joking like i mean it, it's i remember driving away and being like oh are they f- like are they filming something here how do they let their homeless live like this right i mean this is insane like and it's one of those times where you're soberly reminded you know right on the street this is the same country too more so it's this is the same america Mm -hmm. that you know me climbing on my ass and getting in a plane and coming over here we live in the same country and yet we might as well live in diametrically opposite realms this movie could be filmed in chicago in essence with the police uh removing people from lower wacker drive as like the wyndham hotel or more garishly the trump tower is kind of like chrome populating above him and i was thinking about like we're built like literally the homeless man is being forced to build structures to replace people that are not allowed to live anywhere because of the catch-22 like up oh, it's illegal how you're living and it's illegal for you to be out in the street so but please help us build our concrete structures to bury you further underground and especially as we jump into the second half of our show mm-hmm. i want us to kind of keep these things in mind i want us to consider the way in which you know especially in terms of aesthetic that carpenter creates some of these social climbs 
But, you know, shifting gears a little bit, if we're going to talk about, you know, the legacy of They Live and a lot of what it went on to influence and things like that, I want to jump over into the dissected portion of the filmography episode. And to start that off, I want to talk about the decades of horror Carpenter is working in, which is interesting because in some of our other episodes, we're going to span multiple decades and a lot of different cultural contexts. But this week specifically, we are dealing with the 80s start to finish, Mm -hmm. Uh, except for The Fog, which came out just a few months before the Reagan election. These are all Reagan era films which we can argue for in one way or another. And I just want to discuss a little bit like what you may, what of that cultural context you bring to these movies. Sure. And if, if I can jump into this, like it, it totally makes me think of uh, baby boomer nostalgia because Carpenter, what was born like early forties, something along those lines. And he's a total film school brat, mm-hmm. uh, you know, which he evidenced in Halloween with like the footage of the thing that he shows. So, I mean, the fog is him kind of like, Reliving his ghost stories, uh, Big Trouble in Little China is probably like, if I were to hypothesize, I'd say like, is he bringing out his love of old Charlie Chan movies in like populist entertainment fashion? Starman is like, you know, the road movie in a lot of respects. So it's kind of like this 1980s uh, pastiche era, whereas the 70s are tough and gritty and people are kind of like going into new territory in crazy ways. Carpenter's startlingly, um, with the exception of They Live, like he's very much a romantic for old genres in literal and kind of figurative uh, senses. Uh, Yeah, to piggyback on that idea, I feel like he's kind of the scholar slacker. (laughs) Like he's the kid in the back of the room who you think is like flunking all the tests, but he's actually getting by with like B minuses, Bs. And, and yet AKA my high school. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, seriously. Uh, but, and that's, that's kind of what I love about his aesthetic in this is that he just, he does kind of lean on the sort of classicisms of like Mm -hmm. filmmaking, but also seems to be bucking the trend at the same time. And I think that's kind of his, his interesting medium that he's able to operate into mixed results, I would say, you know, I mean, I think that they, I mean, I think this collection of movies is actually the strongest collection you're actually going to see possibly on this, in this series um, with the exception of maybe the American portion. But uh, th- th- this, this does show that sort of dichotomy that is Carpenter in itself, I feel. And what's crazy is like, could you totally imagine him being buddy, buddy with Spielberg? Because they both kind of like, they're both child uh, children of the 1940s boomers that kind of emerge into prominence in the early eighties and onward, but to totally different like uh, genre ends. Whereas Spielberg is openly uh, like awkwardly sympathetic to tremendously successful mass appeal ends. Carpenter, as you kind of suggest, is the smart ass who's kind of getting by and being like, you know, it's cooler violence. Well, that's and I think that's the the, the ultimate, uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, polarization is if you compare E.T. with Starman. Yeah. E.T. is this. I, I love E.T. Look, it's might be one of my favorite. That might be my favorite Spielberg movie. But in this, but you also go back and, and you look at Starman and, you know, beat for beat, it's very similar to E.T., except there's a gritty realism that still harkens back to the mm-hmm. 70s style filmmaking that I don't think E.T. has. I mean, at this point, Spielberg 
with E.T., he had already created his own aesthetic. It was his own brand. There is this sort of, I mean, it's the whole Stranger Things thing. There's that sort of gummy, Mm -hmm. cushiony sort of look of American life. Whereas I feel if you watch Starman, it looks like a movie that was made that could have been made in 1975, I feel. Well, and I would absolutely agree because I even think, especially stylistically, Starman is a movie that is very much of an older studio era. It's back when studio movies were talky still mm-hmm. in so many words. And I'm not talking about like the talkies, the days of the the, the new sound, newfangled sound motion pictures. Exactly. Like, I'm not talking that, but I'm talking about when you could have dialogue-driven adult dramas be major studio movies and major Oscar contenders. I mean, Mm -hmm. what we think of as the stereotypical Sundance movie now was a prestige studio film in the late 70s, early 80s, (laughs) which is very interesting in some respects. And it shows you as much as anything how the mainstream palette has changed. And I think especially through this decade, you see kind of this weariness set in from the optimism of Starman. Mm-hmm. And granted, it's a couched optimism and an optimism born of, again, a cynicism about the government, which we're going to return to over and over again in our discussions of Carpenter and a broader cultural context but then by 86 you have kind of this fanciful digression away from reality entirely and then by 88 the end of the reagan years you have probably the angriest movie that john carpenter would ever make it's almost funny if you look at 86 87 88 not to bring in a movie we aren't talking about today like you have like this um, uh what is it it's almost like 1980s catholic guilt in a way (laughs) 1986, you have Big Trouble in Little China, where he's like uh, just kind of putting it all out in flagrant, flashy style. 1987, he repents with Prince of Darkness, like a deeply morbid Catholic end of the world movie. And then he's trying to be social and atone with a live in a lot of respects. It's almost like a midlife crisis series of movies, mm-hmm. if you think about it, yeah. like him kind of going into these big uh kind of midwestern value instilled like notions of like i've i'm having a great time with big trouble in little china okay i feel bad now about that it wasn't successful so clearly i have sinned uh, well <laughs> if and- we're gonna put that read on it which i kind of want to well, and it's very interesting, too, because to kind of lapse that over into the site portion of our discussion, which is us talking cinematography, editing, art direction, and so on, mm-hmm. if we jump right into Little China, then, that is by far the most fanciful of these movies visually by a long shot. I'd just like to give Dom uh, some quick credit, by the way. He prepared Google Sheets for us with cinematographer names, and I have a serious problem with Gary B. Kibb versus Gary K. Bibb. Which one's right? <laughs> you tell me, commenters. I really fuck it up a lot. But no, the cinematography of these movies, like, and Rotham, you were, you were banging on this drum earlier, like Dean Cundy, who also graduated to Spielberg yes, projects, correct? With uh, Jurassic Park. Which is partially why I kind of hypothesized, like, these are two kids who are, like, totally in, like, the same vein mm-hmm. of, like, style and Americana nostalgia, but are doing it to different like ends. Again, Carpenter the smart ass, but he knows where to place a camera and always has. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well until he got to the you know the, the aughts where they I think digital cinema just maybe wasn't his friend. I think he really needs to operate from the film portion just because I uh, whatever. That we'll go obviously you'll go into those movies if you already haven't with uh Ghost of Mars. But uh yeah I mean I, I think visually that's never a problem with any of these films. I think mm-hmm. that, you know, look, I mean, even if they live, which is clearly a film I've vocalized my frustrations with, 
I can't fault it. I mean, look, the promotion for this very series is all based and steeped in They Live. I mean, he's absolutely because there's a handful of classic images in that film, which we'll boomerang back to in a sec. But with Big Trouble in Little China, one thing I wanted to bring up that didn't really feel relevant to the earlier part of our discussion is that one of the things I love, and especially Blake, you made the point that this is Carpenter working not just within um, martial arts as a medium, but within like the screwball whimsy of the Charlie Chan films of the early part of the 20th century as well. Oh, hell, if you go one step further, it's Looney Tunes with like sight gags and long shots of people dancing in hallways and stuff like that. Absolutely. And a man pops to the point that lettuce shoots out of him. I'm like, I, I don't know yeah. what to do with that. It's a money, yeah. it's, it's the um, Monty Python Life of Brian it gag is. played uh, for like slightly more dramatic effect but Mr. only Creosote, slightly just one more way for mr creosote Ugh. um sorry. well and and one of the things i love about it is how it is so transparently a movie performed on backlot mm-hmm. sets in mm-hmm. its entirety again yes. going back to that notion of physicality that i brought up earlier this is an extremely tactile physical movie because it feels like an old hollywood production just in the sense that it was filmed on these backlot sets mm-hmm. everything looks physical everything is a little bit chintzy but in the right way you know well, they had to save money for all the effects for Richard Enlund, right? Like, it's all electrical effects and, like, cool stuff. I mean, it, in, in seriousness, I would totally love to see, like, someone say, no, 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 the reason they did it on sets is because we had to pay for all the embellishments in Russell. Um, or, sorry, Kurt Russell. But, like, yeah, no, it totally feels like an adventure movie that could have happened on the backstage with a couple of lights and rear projection. Is there rear projection in this? Oh, there is. But we'll talk about it in a minute. Well, you yeah. know, it's interesting that, you know, you mentioned the whole, like, kind of Spielberg alignment with Carpenter. And mm-hmm. if we're going to keep going with, like, the sort of uh, high school imagery here or any schoolboy imagery or school class imagery, I it, it it does feel like Carpenter is the sort of like you know fringe alternative kid versus like the more uh, mainstream uh, mm-hmm. entryway for um, with, with Spielberg and even with Big Trouble it almost feels like and these these films came around the same time it's like if everyone was talking about the Goonies and being like man this movie is so crazy and fantastical and wild you could have the one kid going in there and be like yeah but have you seen Big Trouble in Little China like and they are very similar in the sense that. They, they're almost like that that sort of rabbit hole movie where you just you know just keep digging deeper and deeper into these weird weird underground that that underground underbelly of what we can it starts from a normal place which is the city and, and big trouble a little china's case and just keeps going deeper and deeper into weird fantastical worlds and in 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 goonies while it's also jarring and granted that's a richard donner film but spielberg's all over that movie um and you look in in, in both of them there seems to be a dis. They're they're similar in in they're almost very similar in aesthetic too because there's that sort of fantasy meets reality angle. Mm-hmm. But with Carpenter, it's so it's it's taken to another level, and it, and it's almost just like you know he's able to go there. Where in a way that like Goonies kind of holds itself back a little bit. Can well, I just say there's... you were talking about the fantastical. I was just on the IMDb page, and I love that the first filming location is simply California, USA, which is weirdly totally fits what you're saying. The notion of the fantastical yeah. only in Hollywood, yeah, right? yeah exactly, yeah. right? Kind of like silly. Well, that's the thing. It's so transparently a Hollywood movie, mm-hmm. and yet messing around within that purview at the same time because again. You know, that's a very unorthodox Hollywood movie, whereas if you jump back to Mm -hmm. Starman just a couple years earlier, that's arguably his most orthodox Hollywood movie. (laughs) 
down to the fact that he's working with a cinematographer and editor that he hadn't worked with before, that he's working with a composer that he hadn't worked with before, as we'll get to in a minute. This is Carpenter very much plugged in to direct a film that was sort of put together outside of his purview. Mm -hmm. And it's really the only time in his career that he really did that. And it's very interesting to see that he was able to make something so translatable and so crowd pleasing in that respect. Which is funny, too, because, like, I, I, you know, I only remember the genesis in the sense that Columbia Pictures had the screenplay for five years prior and they were just kind of wishy-washy on it. It was a Michael Douglas production, right? Uh, or something yeah. like that. Because um, and Columbia Pictures is kind of being wonky. So, I mean, maybe it's a credit to the power of the screenplay that even a person like John Carpenter, who was kind of opinionated and strongly visual in his works prior to that, is able to pull out something that is so simply pleasing because what is it, Reynold Gideon, Reynold Evans, Gideon, oh, their names are so hard to remember. Um, Bruce Evans, Reynold Gideon. So they're kind of like regular mainstays in Hollywood. They wrote Stand By Me. Which is funny because Jack Nietzsche did the score for for that too. Yeah. yeah. And then they made Mr. Brooks, that weird ass Kevin Costner movie with Dane Cook oh. in 2007. Plus they did, they wrote Jungle to Jungle. So they're like, they're Hollywood journeymen just kind of like pumping out oh. the, the genre hits and like in the basis methods. Uh, cuffs with Christian Slater. Uh, uh, I actually I have a soft spot for Cuffs, but I also just love Christian Slater. Uh, I finally watched Pump Up the Volume a month ago, and I was very very taken aback. It's like there's no there's no way this would work with your damn <laughs> loving of pop music in the early '90s. Sorry, we're digressing way too far. But the point being, like you know, um, Starman. I don't know. It gets it gets by on like the G shock simplicity, and like there is old fashioned Americana, and like. Maybe there's something inherently Christian that some people forget in the climate of detaining uh, people from a different place where it's like we welcome an alien with astonishment and then inevitable open arms. Well, and I think there's something really interesting in how that's visually represented, too, because you Mm -hmm. get a lot of very clean photography, very brightly lit photography. And the thing that strikes me as really interesting is if Mm -hmm. we keep invoking Spielberg in this discussion – There's a lot, particularly the blue and red flared light of those early scenes, Mm -hmm. more than accidentally recalls Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I think there's a great aesthetic similarity, especially in the early portion of Starman. Which you uh, you have to wonder if this was almost like Carpenter's revenge flick. Because if you go back to like the thing, no, I love this a, notion that Starman was purely a revenge. <laughs> well, like he was just like, you know what? I'm going to do this, and I'm going to I'm going to try to capitalize on almost the Spielberg sort of heart. Because out of all of Carpenter's films, this is easily the most heartfelt out of out of, out of any of them. I mean, I, I can't think of a single film of his that even comes close to being heartfelt like this. There isn't. I, I from front from beginning to end, what what other movie is comes even like that that even even Which touches is funny. this realm. You were talking about the notion and we we were talking about like kind of the the quaint um notions like the simplistic notions of how Karen Allen is presented alone meditatively and like you can kind of take that in a number of different directions. I think the ending is almost the most ominous looking thing in this movie. And I, I'm pulling up the clip really quickly just to refresh my color palette. But like it's very brutal reds against yeah. like very pale whites and blues with high contrast black lighting against like this very strong overhead light plus laser light smoke and stuff like that. And if you if it like just Google Starman ending, uh, you can find it on YouTube really easy. You'll see it like 
there's a very like ominous danger to that color choice. Whereas Close Encounters has those bright lights in the sky, so it's and like same spotlight. With the end of VT. Yeah, yeah. And there's something like the there's fact that this a is kind of flush. At the end of VT. Right? <laughs> We're looking at a picture of Karen Allen right now with a deep smoky red background, yeah. and her face is like cast shadow with tiny amounts of blue light against her. And that feels like it belongs in a horror movie about the beyond, which is so weird to try and mediate. He's using his like graphic, high saturated pulp color skills, which we were talking about earlier with the fog. Like he knows how to make a blue rich. Here he knows how to make a red and blue pop. Uh, pardon the design term, but like it, it's also like tonally, it just it looks very creepy right now. But it also it keeps it within the realm of the accessible while also rendering it otherworldly in the mm. exact same breath. Yeah. No. And, you know, if you're going to invoke the fog, I want to pop over to that again real quick, because, again, those deep, saturated, dark blues are so, so much of the palette of that film and where Starman kind of cuts them off with those flecks of like bright reds and oranges, as you described at the mm-hmm. other end of the visual spectrum. The fog is all muted color Mm -hmm. and it's honestly kind of remarkable how compelling a film it is given that muted palette i mean we see nowadays a million movies come out in that kind of dark blue black gunmetal gray i was about to say they're all hideous if you are nuts about roger deakins and his silhouettes and you know people love sicario and no No country for old men on this on twitter and tumblr image boards like you will love the fog for those same like silhouette techniques and strategies well it's not surprise you know even just doing today as a joke like i had you know listed my top five for carpenter and the majority of his films, with the exception of like Assault and Priest and Thirteen, just because mm-hmm. it's more of a deep cut, are all on the GIF options for Twitter because his <laughs> films are so visually entertaining. Yeah. I mean, they all are like these perfect portraits. Oh, entertaining and super appealing because yes. his movies look good. It's kind of funny like how candy. it took twenty five years for it to come around into like serious Oscar aesthetic. Mm-hmm. I think about No Country for Old Men and the chase scene with Josh Brolin with like people's bodies against like the slowly emerging horizon that's the kind of stuff that the fog was doing Mm -hmm. in in earnest for the purposes of terror i it like this is totally like photo school nonsense that's the kind of thing that would get you made fun of in a photo class because it's like it's just you're kind of ruin the image by making the person dark no there's something very powerful and concrete about stripping an image to, if you were to make it black and white, like it turns into pantomime. It turns yeah. into something print ready. And that's that's kind of cool that you mentioned the GIF notion of it. Because it's almost like these could work as silent films. Yeah. And in the case of, um, what is it, like Starman could potentially work. Fog. The oh, fog, absolutely. It does. deserves to be every Facebook banner in a way. Yeah, no, and, I, and I, it's funny that you mentioned the silent film angle because when I was watching it, um, I watched it twice leading up to this, and I had just kind of left it on the second time, just in the background. And at some point, you know, when I put it mm-hmm. on pause, um, my soundbar turns off, and I just had <laughs> totally forgotten. And I just pushed it on play, and because I was working and just watching in the background, I still, I still got the story beat for beat. And I don't think it's because I had just watched it a few days prior. I just, I just think the film itself does work when it's just on its own because you really don't need anything. You just, you get the fog itself is just. There's no voice to it, you know, and you just see the threat there. And a lot of it comes through in just the visuals, which is why, again, like aesthetic does all the heavy lifting in this movie for me. Like, and that is a cool test to pass. Can you get by without dialogue and fog? Yeah, I would argue it definitely does. It absolutely does. And I think 
especially in terms of silent film aesthetic that rolls mm-hmm. over really curiously into they live then because if we're jumping from one end of the 80s for carpenter to the other mm-hmm. you have a film that is really mining that silent film aesthetic in a lot of respects not only in that oversaturated black and white that sort of very clean black and white the way that only modern films have a clean black and white quite yes. like that um, and I feel like we should totally pitch Roddy Piper as the Charlie Chaplin of the 1980s, just <laughs> silently wandering around the gutters of L.A., like looking rueful at his circumstances. No, but uh, yeah, you're totally on. My man. favorite Canadian Scott. But anyway, <laughs> I no, honestly, I, I love a lot about They Live and especially sort of the classic influence because mm-hmm. specifically when Piper puts on the glasses and starts wandering around haplessly, yeah, he... It very much looks like Night of the Living Dead is what most immediately come to mind, particularly in the grotesque character designs of the aliens. Those black and white visions are amazing. And again, not to harken back to art school, like I totally shit on text art like that. The B, like that's when you're trying to hammer home a point, which I find a little insulting because it has to be spelled out in literal fashion. But in the annals of like B movie pulp and crisp black and white imagery, it looks amazing. Like those alien people, they look better in black and white than they do as like blue and red flesh. Yeah, because in the last few shots of the film, when you finally see them in the quote unquote real world, Mm -hmm. I mean, I won't go as far as saying they look ridiculous. I know y'all might disagree with me. It's only because of what the setups that they're in. Also, to the the point of earlier I made, like, this movie gets things right and wrong at the same time. Carpenter said he designed them that way to make them look like human decay, which is a great, like, thesis for that makeup. Then you look at the color and how it actually looks with the weird rubber jaws and teeth and stuff like that. And it's like... You're you're getting by. I like your idea, even though it's not totally working. Because we don't really ever see any other examples at the mm-hmm. end that are just them more natural, like we do in the rest of the movie. I mean, because at that point he's just going full in. He's just going like full Nelson and just like, all right, we're gonna show ridiculous scenes with these guys. And like, I mean, the fact that it ends with like the gratuitous sex scene is like. You know, that kind of hammers that point home a little bit. Oh, it's the inverse of the end of Starman. Uh, uh, (laughs) Consummation uh, through horror as opposed to consummation via magic. Yeah. Yeah, where we're going here. Yeah. 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 Please arrest me. I, but I, th- there is something really off-putting about the black and white uh, yeah. shots in this movie because it, it it does even the way the buildings come out, it almost looks as if it just like peels back anything and you just kind of see what society is in itself is just concrete. I was gonna say, yeah, there's an ugliness to Los Angeles when he puts the glasses on, and yeah, it's desaturating it of color, and that's the obvious point. But yeah, there's it it, it makes everything hideous. Yeah, it's a concrete jungle, which is what most people complain about with like New York or any metropolis that's in the you know a build a, a city so big it feels like it'll collapse on you in any second. Yeah, yeah. no, uh, yeah. but that that is kind of that was the first thing I thought when I was watching the beginning of that movie, and maybe it's Midwestern vibe. It's like. Who the hell would go to Los Angeles no, outside just... of the temperature? Well, know? hey, you get a cool couch outside to watch TV. So, um, <laughs> you know, God. Which, by the way, Dom, is there any way we could do a five-minute interjection or one minute to, uh, like, lay some appreciation on, uh, what's his name, Buck Flowers, the guy... From uh, Back to the Future? George um, Buck Flower, yeah. who played Tommy Wallace, the, uh, the, the seaman on The Fog who dies pretty early on. The homeless guy who becomes wealthy elite and they live. 
the the homeless guy also in. I think Universal keeps him on the back lot. They literally pull him off the shelf. Off, uh, he's layered on top of the mummy rags yeah. uh, on a shelf. Crazy drunk drivers. Who are you? Uh, no, but he he also was in Starman too. Is one of the people that rides along with Starman late in the movie. I I don't mean to tangent like like run off on this, but like that guy, are, was he in Carpenter? Were they buds or anything of that nature? Because like he kind of. Carpenter got the most mileage out of him in his career for what it's yeah, worth. Yeah, I mean, it, he he gave him a cameo in almost every film. That's kind of um, cool. Like the Pixar keep John Ratzenberger or, uh, in all movies thing, right? Yeah, which is kind of crazy because, I mean, he started out with The Fog for sure with him because he was never in anything else prior to that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, he just must have appealed to... You know, to Carpenter's, Carpenter's sensibilities, because I mean, honestly, like there are he's a bunch a of rusty people. American look to well, him, yeah. But even like somebody like Peter Jason, like who he's used in almost every other one of his films too. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, who I always uh, mistaken for looking just like Meatloaf, but um, you know, he, <laughs> that's he, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. He used him in everything. I mean, like after after um, you know, he used him in like Prince of Darkness. Uh, he had him in uh, In the Mouth of Madness, Village of the Damned. Escape from L.A. He's in Ghosts of Mars. I mean, he's been in just. It's just funny. Like he and he did the, the amount same of thing. Carpenter like, that guys is kind of impressive. But, yeah. but, but Carpenter's old school in that way. I mean, if you go back to Fog, it's literally the cast of Halloween there. I mean, Nancy Loomis is there. You have um, Charles Cyphers, who he was using in a bunch of movies, uh, and and then like and obviously Jamie Lee Curtis. And I mean, it's, it's totally just, trivial. Like I think about this because I, I saw Bradley Cooper speak to Stars Born recently. Mm-hmm. Humblebrag. No, uh, and he basically was like everybody I cast in this movie was like old friends from grad school project as projects I've worked worked on before and i find something very endearing about that so when i see a carpenter movie with like regular players and i think that's partially why people like wes anderson movies so much like oh your buddies but but i think clicks unfortunately make you feel bad when they're outside of them but no uh but think think about all the films that you would consider uh made by an auteur yeah quote unquote auteur i think most of them have a lot of the shared cast i mean like oh that's why criterion put out that Truffaut box set of like uh jean-pierre lode over the course of 25 years of movies growing up since 400 blows and yeah to spielberg using like uh, he was like uh, using dreyfus for a while exactly i mean and and even for like someone like christopher nolan is someone that's more modern he's used like tom hardy a bunch of times he used like michael Caine, morgan freeman i mean christian bale for a number of movies beyond batman Yeah, yeah so i mean there, there is something to be said about that matching the aesthetic. I mean, I think Carpenter, out of any filmmaker, with the exception of maybe David Lynch, does it on every category. <laughs> I mean, because he does his music, he does the writing, and he does the filmmaking. And I think a lot of his filmmaking largely influences the cinematography, too. Yeah, but. well, and it's it's true auteurism in the way that doesn't really exist anymore in the industry, but which was the thing you made your name upon at one time. Yeah. You get to put your name on it in like a million different capacities. Did Carpenter edit anything? I'm just, I'm asking blanket. Not historically, no. And I know he's written some things and he was open to screenplays. We know about the scores with the exception of like the Ennio Morricone, Shirley Walker, Jack Nietzsche kind of stuff here and there. But which is- which is, pretty. which is funny because even the scores that he didn't do, mm-hmm. which, you know, he he if you go back to like the thing, like he had a lot of influence on how the score was made on that because he was basically saying like, no, strip, strip, strip more and more. Really? And more. Yeah. And, to the point where Morricone wasn't exactly thrilled because Carpenter just used all the most modernist parts of the score he'd yeah. put together. I feel like there should be a mini documentary about Morricone putting up with director bullshit. John <laughs> Carpenter told me to do this. Quentin wanted this one from an old movie. What do you people want from well, me? What's interesting? 
interesting because like if you listen to the, if you go and listen to the main score for the thing and mm-hmm. then also listen to the score that plays in 80 in De Palma's Untouchables specifically the scene when they're getting ready like at the Canadian borderline it is almost the same exact theme like and didn't you suggest I think you suggested to this to me at one point that like portions of Interstellar and Hans Zimmer even sound like Morricone for what it's worth yeah. like yeah. It, there is something to like synth texture and pulsation and whatever but I mean, and, it's and like all Warner we've done is take it and make it orchestral. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Sorry, we're totally geeking out on like Well, and Carpenter I was going to say, <laughs> I'm going to let you talk Carpenter <laughs> scores in just a second. But before we move on from the site category specifically, mm. I want to hit us with our favorite segment here at Filmography, The Lasting Image. <laughs> so of the three films we've discussed today, give me your favorite single shots for many. Blake, Go. No, sure. And there are a couple of big winners on this. Like, I love the uh, transition into the opening title of They Live from the credits. I think that's really witty. I I love everything about the texture in 35 millimeter, like creamy, cool vibe with the fog. Um, and even stuff in Starman, like, I think is very romantic and naturalistic. That's really cool. But if I were to pick one thing, because the movie is a smorgasbord of, like, silly shots... It'd be big trouble in Little China, and it's it's stemming totally from that big final battle where they're like "fuck it" uh, and everything just kind of goes awol. In there, you have the video game fight between the villains with their magic beams and samurais popping out uh, uh, of light beams. You have people jumping back and forth and speed racer style, having sword fights in the middle of the air. But because I am a lizard brain. Uh, because I'm a baboon, <laughs> I love, love, love that one shot of uh, Jack Burton. Well, specifically, one, the lead up to this one shot. Jack Burton, excited about the battle because they just have their like shots of magic potion drink alcohol before the big final battle. They're all feeling confident. The fight is about to begin. Jack shoots his semi-automatic rifle into the ceiling in a, such a way where debris falls on his head and knocks him the hell out. And I'm like, that could have been in any great like Tom and Jerry cartoon right there. And I'm such, I'm like a mark for the cheap seats. I love that shit. I love that's a gif. It's like when you think things are going well and suddenly they're not going well now. That the whole last like half hour is full of great, like cheap physical comedy that I'm, I'm totally there for. So yeah, Jack Burton getting stunned by concrete over his head. (laughs) That is, that is the lasting shot for me. That is the kind of thing I would use. Like, Guess someone's got a case of the Mondays on Twitter kind of image. <laughs> like, I love that stuff. So, And it's also kind of a sign that Carpenter maybe had a little bit of levity inside of him that this movie was able to, like, let him unleash. So well, it's funny that you said the levity thing because mm-hmm. he – I remember one of my favorite quotes from Carpenter is that it is an absolute joy to make a horror movie. And I'm totally butchering this, but this is the gist of it. <laughs> it's an absolute joy to make a horror movie, and it's an absolute nightmare to make a comedy, um, which is – he just – he hated a Megan because and, – and honestly, it's, it's I, I understand yeah. it because it's – it's like it's so hard to capture a laugh, but it's so much. I mean, people love, you know, you know, scaring and making fun. Of, there's like mm-hmm. this sort of anxiety tied to this. Am I going to make this person laugh? Am I gonna make, I mean, they, and both yeah. of them have some sort of subjective. I mean, a lot of subjectivity to it because everyone's scared in different ways and everyone laughs in different ways. But I think with Carpenter, it's like I think he nailed the the idea of being able to tap into the the general psyche of people to be able to like, say, all right, yeah. this is going to scare you. But I don't I don't know if he ever had the confidence to like be able to say like well can i make him laugh you know like i just don't 
And whether it was intentional or not, like he has a sense of like camera placement in space, like, yeah. you, and you see it within like the the Woody Allen sleeper gags of people fighting in a doorway, or like you know cartoon comedy and special effects in that movie. But that image of like close up of him getting knocked out is like that is <laughs> just that is screwball one oh one right there. Yeah, it reminds me of like Sam Raimi almost, like the oh the, yeah the physicality of yeah, like, yeah. like Evil Dead two or something. But um, oh. For, yeah, for me, I, I mean, it's got it. For me, it's the, it's got to be the fog. I mean, in, in, in terms of the lasting, clo- uh, the lasting shot. I mean, the, God, there's so many of them in this movie, but because I really love the whole opening sequence. But that last shot when they all appear behind, uh, you know, Hal Holbrook is just so haunting uh, because it again, you know, something's going to happen. But the way in which, and they've teased this throughout the whole film, and the use of shadows and the use of light, uh, juxtapos- juxtaposing the shapes and stuff. Uh, and at this point, he had had it down after doing Halloween with uh, with all the Michael Myers and the castle shots. But that last shot where they're standing behind him is so haunting and it's so jarring. And even just watching it recently with uh, with my girlfriend, we had just watched Hereditary like a few days beforehand. And it was, we get to this final shot and we're just kind of like chatting a little bit. And then that that happens. And she, she like literally jumped off of the couch. <laughs> There's just something so oh. jarring about seeing all these shapes everywhere. And I think it's very influential to how horror is done. Uh, maybe not so much in the 90s per se, but of where it's going now. Um, and, it's, and that seems to be coming back big time in horror. And I love it because that's that, that type of stoic horror horror that plays with the foreground and background is my favorite thing you know just quick you know what i love about that in any other context post 1990 that would be a sequel ending like the fall too we need to figure out more but like no it's just it's a great like pulp novel gotcha thrill which is kind of a cool move on that movie's part and it goes and plays with the whole themes of the movie which is like that old folklore just like well, and in keeping with our whole discussion, I think it'll be appropriate that my favorite shot is from They Live, considering I like it a lot more than either you, but... Those listening, Dominic is wearing a kilt and a hot rod t-shirt. Me and Ronda Rousey, we're up on it. <laughs> but anyway, I, no, I my favorite shot is from They Live, and it's one of the shots from Rowdy Roddy Piper's Awakening, granted, but the shot that sticks with me longest is there's a sustained take of Piper looking down an old school newsstand on the sidewalk. And it really lingers over this shot of him glancing down at every one of the magazine covers reading obey conform and so on and so forth. And, you know, these are images that have been played to death. We kind of talked about before the intermission, how, you know, these are films in which, like subtlety is a non-entity like yeah they live whatever we will say for its merits is not a subtle movie and more than that i think there's a lot in it about like this very i hate to say teenage as blake put it but this kind of like more youthful awakening of living in a corrupt world but i also think it's a really evocative powerful image of that just scrolling down knowing Every single thing you are looking at is just absolute trash. It's, you know, South Park would satirize this years and years later Mm -hmm. with the whole you're getting old idea, which is some of the best television making that show has ever done. But it's that idea of you coming to a moment in life where you realize that everything around you is shit and you hate all of it. There is a genuine terror to that that I think that sequence in particular really captures. And then back to Hammer at Home, we're talking about Carpenter Beyond. 
Carpenter, beyond your control. Like, life is beyond your control. It's going to move, develop, build, and crush you and be completely, like, omnipotently developed to destroy you. Whether it's magazines and the implicit notion of behavioral science can make you buy a Coca-Cola in 20 minutes or the fact that the system is rigged in a such a way. Like... I don't know. Would you call that a cynical moment uh, in addition to an eye-opening moment? Or would you call it like an important call to arms? I would call it much more a call to arms because I think there's a lot of cynicism and bitterness to that movie. Mm -hmm. But by the same token, I don't think any of it is really because of some kind of posture. I think Carpenter, for better and worse, is making a film about how he saw the 80s at that moment. Sure. I mean, especially since how late it is into the 80s. I mean, at that point... I think that there's the frustrations are boiling over not only just from what's going on politically, but even like maybe uh, structurally in within the Hollywood model. Maybe he saw what was going on with the even the film school generation, just maybe so how how far they've gone, how you know where they splintered off to, and maybe there's some frustrations there. And that's again to like the the whole revenge thing, but like you know at this point uh, in time, like they live. Spielberg is already starting to get closer and closer to the the Oscar, you know, and, you know, Starman gets Carpenter there through an acting nom. And I, I, I don't mm-hmm. think Carpenter is the type of person yeah. that gives a shit about that, at least not now, just knowing how he is now. But I, I do wonder if there is that sort of notion in, in, that was under his skin at that point where and we talked about a lot of this with like Stephen King, especially when um, in the last episode for it, mm-hmm. we talked about how like after he published it, he didn't want to. He was just like, I'm done with horror. And I thought and I theorized a lot of that had to do with the fact that he was considered this best selling author. And yet he wasn't getting the respect of a best selling author and the author that's on top of the world. And he was coming into the more prestigious works that were actually being celebrated like the next year or that year, actually, um, Stand By Me came out. And so. Um, it, I, I do wonder with Carpenter if he has that sort of anxieties too, or frust- no, maybe it's not so much anxieties, but just frustrations. Yeah. And he kind of put it all out there in the very city that film was born, uh, or at least mainstream <laughs> film was born. And, and 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 maybe that's a part of that anger and vitriol as well. I don't mean. You know. Well, and it's very interesting because you know I'm going to use that as an opportunity to jump over into discussion of sound a little bit. Mm-hmm. Because in the case of Starman, you have this Jack Nietzsche score that is pretty much unlike anything else that's ever been in a Carpenter movie. You know, it's very prestigious. It's very, you know, it swells in the way that the scores. echoes and like it. Yeah, it does swell. swell, Oh, God, swell is the unfortunate best word for it. Bingo. Uh, it, it, yeah, it's totally the E.T. ending with like this loud music kind of telling you how to feel. Exactly. It's, yeah. it's kind of being guided along by a score in a way that his scores never really are, at least not in such a blunt force way. Yeah. And you know, I don't mind it, but again, it's an ominous score that gives way to something more open and positive. You know, it's a lot of choral arrangement to your point, Blake. It's, mm-hmm. it doesn't sound like Carpenter and where the other three films we're discussing this week very much sound like Carpenter movies, Starman is in this respect as well, kind of an outlier. Which yeah. is funny because he actually covered it for his anthology collection last year. Uh, and you know, in a wait, he covered Starman. Yeah, really. Yeah, yeah. Huh. And he like, yeah. So he actually brought it onto his anthology collection. And when we talked to him last year, when Consequence of Sound talked to him last year, um, when I would, I actually did the interview for this. It was for a track by track. 
Carpenter basically just said he was like, you know, like Jack was recommended to, to him by Michael Douglas. Um, Douglas had told him that he was a genius, but uh, Carpenter found out that uh, Nietzsche co-wrote one of his favorite rock songs with Sonny Bono called uh, Needles and Pins. So Carpenter was a huge fan of him. Um, and he basically breaks down how uh, Jack Nietzsche did the the song or the score, the main theme. And apparently like he had used a synclavier and which I think that's how you say it. Uh, but he had actually sampled his wife's voice, uh, Buffy St. Marie. Um, and they just kind of melded it together. And I think he just wanted to, and I was joking with Blake uh, about this earlier, but I think he wanted to do the kind of thing that like Hunter S. Thompson uh, talked about where he wanted to write, like he just rewrote Great Gatsby one night uh, just to see what it was like. And I just think it was that. I just think it was as simple as that. He was just like, well, I really love this. The, you know, uh, He told me he was very proud of this movie. Um, and I think he just wanted that to be part of his collection to show that this was this, this sort of light touch is also part of the, the sort of car- carpenter mold. Um, well, it's kind of funny cause he's never quite shied away from like a long synthetic tone, a pulse, some like holding a note for a little long. But yeah. the curious thing about Starman is this, this high key mm-hmm. that makes a scream sympathetic or over sympathetic which is just it's kind of a weird feeling yeah i mean literally i'm looking at the poster right now and the tagline is uh he has traveled from a galaxy far beyond our own he has powers we cannot comprehend and he is about to face the one force in the universe he has yet to conquer love how is it not gonna have like (laughs) a ridiculously overbaked like echoey score like that you know um honestly like the more we talk about this movie, the more I'm like, you know what? Good for him for taking this on and being willing to say, like, I'm going to put my heart on my sleeve conditionally. Yeah. <laughs> so long as it has certain genre requirements yeah. that I can work within. But Well, it's just it's just bizarre because it's like Christine is in that same realm. And, mm-hmm. and honestly, because that was kind of his... Um, redemption movie that he did because God, because because the world is unfair and everyone <laughs> sucks. The, the thing put him in timeout for some reason at the time. Uh, but and, and the Christine is is very much a studio picture. It was rushed mm-hmm. because Stephen King was was popular at the time, and I mean it was literally. <laughs> oh, not like 2017 year. or 2018 at all right oh, now. Oh, yeah, nothing like because today. Because fashion is cyclical, people. Oh. Stephen King is back for a good number of years. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And and honestly, with, with this, it's like at least he got to do the score for, mm-hmm. for Christine, where it's like this one he didn't. He, he literally just came in, did the, the work behind the camera, and that was, you know, that was that. Before, I, I do like the downbeat on Christine. Like, I think that's a really crunchy cool score oh yeah and i and, I, and then the the duffer brothers love it too because it sounds just like the stranger themes so it's really theme oh yeah like oh, the a it does but b blake you're getting three weeks ahead come on now well uh you run me over with christine what am i what am i gonna do <laughs> Well, no, I wanted to talk about Escape from New York, okay? Because we're living in a prison state, people. <laughs> the cops what? are about to be called. This is uh, not reality. <laughs> Come on, Gobel. We're getting to that on next week's episode. You know that. I know, I know. But I know. so if we're talking about Nietzsche's score on Starman, then we can talk about the other three films, all of which were done by Carpenter, albeit Big Trouble in Little China and They Live, were Carpenter in association with Alan Haworth who did a lot of the um, synth transposition of his music in the 80s that gave it, by and large, the sound that people associate with Carpenter today. 
Which and and Alan Howarth, he went on to go do like all the other Halloween sequels, uh, and he had worked with Carpenter on a lot of like the the kind of remasterings for the original one, and he mm-hmm. worked with Carpenter for Halloween to this the score at that, and in addition to what I think is Carpenter's best score, which we won't be talking about because it's not one of his movies, is Halloween Three: Season of the Witch, and 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 with That's like a cool score for a shitty movie, such a fucking good score, and. And and like what I love with his association with Howarth is that they he expands Carpenter's minimalism to really just explore the sort of space. And I love that so much about their collaborations together. Well, and especially you hear that in Big Trouble in Little China, which Blake, I can already feel you like radiating waves of contradiction. But I'm open to all possibilities. But the thing (laughs) the thing I do really like about the Little China score is that it is every bit as freewheeling and anarchic as the film around it. It's a big (laughs) score for Little China. Um. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a big score you got right there for a little movie, John Carpenter. (laughs) As his security beats the shit out of you. No, um, I'm not 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 crazy. I I actually like the thing I love about Big Trouble in Little China even more is uh, Carpenter and Howard's song that they uh, they did for the movie. And if you've ever seen the music video that's associated Mm -hmm. uh, with it, it's great. It's uh, they they played uh, Big Trouble here at the Vic. Uh, which is a theater that doesn't really give a shit about its volume levels, and <laughs> it's very freezing most of the time in the winter. But you know that's aside from the point. Was but the music video all footage from the movie it's, in the eighties style? It's some of that with them in like spacesuits. Like, oh, stop space. it! I, no. Oh, it's amazing! It's amazing. The video is is so good. I fully um, admit I didn't do good enough homework. I need to watch this. It's it's, yeah. it's a great uh, you know little uh, th- gem oh, if you wanted to go like look Steven for Spielberg it. interrupting the Cindy Lauper video to say like yeah, I have I, a solution. I, actually, no, I take it back. It's not them in spacesuits. It's them in almost what looks like a spaceship, and they look like uh, they're Crockett and Tubbs in the entire time. Which, oh it's, my god, it's awesome! Yeah, so this is what they 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 have like effects like this. Um, and it's like them at the the computers playing together in this like room. I mean, it's a recording studio, but it's made up to be like this like sort of like postmodern. Listeners, stop. Go to yeah. Google Images. Look up Big Trouble in Little China music video. Worth a moment of your time. This is amazing. <laughs> and John Carpenter is wearing sunglasses like, hey, baby. It's great. With, it's, it's, oh, my God. This yeah, is beautiful. It's, so, it's, it's like the Ghostbusters video with yes. like shades of neon. Yeah, oh, and wow. And he's wearing like the Kanye window shades uh, glasses. John and, Carpenter clearly wants a new drug. Uh, yeah. like, well, that's amazing. Well, in looping back around to the score of the film, yeah. even what I think is really interesting is how, you know, it's very much a Carpenter score. It has that yes. kind of staccato bass heavy thrum that a lot of his scores tend to have associated with them. But there's also, you know, a bunch of. I don't know how to put it eloquently, so I'll just toss it out. "Quote unquote" Asian instrumentation. Ineloquent? You mean you mean non-racist? Uh, no, no. Believe me, I wanted to say like it's like chopsticks repetition until I thought, wait, chopsticks might be uh, the wrong word to describe it. But you know the song "Chopsticks." No, I. If we can focus for a second on the sound, my problem is the level of repetition without mm-hmm. any. You were comparing it to a video game earlier, uh, Mike and Dom, really. Like, and I'm thinking to myself, yeah, that's kind of the problem with the score because video game music is about putting out a perfect two minutes that you can repeat for upwards of 20 minutes before either it's stuck in your head forever or you're so pissed off at said item that you feel like you're never going to escape. And that's kind of my beef with this score is like the repetition. There's no, there's no big aha moments. It's texture, it's sound. It's kind of like... 
synth pad electronic sounds from the 1980s backfiring if you don't have a concrete theme or a boisterous enough boisterous enough melody and yeah to kind of like the choppy sound like there's asian texture that feels like it wouldn't be out of place in long duck dong and 16 candles if i'm trying to put like a texture to the sound well the, the, the problem also is that this is around the time where carpenter gets really into the, his rock and roll roots and you you talked about yeah. it last week with uh with a couple of his with you know, one of his movies for sure uh where with the uh, ghost of mars when it just becomes just like anthrax the entire time or whatever but with <laughs> if you look through most of his 90s work and a lot of his late 80s stuff it's just it's all this like like especially if you like listen to vampires or uh the score for uh, in the mouth of madness which is literally just pulled from ender sandman by metallica like it's it's all this like very like hey we're rock and rollers also and and for me it's like some of it works and then some of it just gets very like lame well and it's one of his most expansive scores which again runs against the tradition of what we think of as the carpenter score because if we're thinking of the traditional john carpenter score we're thinking of something a lot more like what he does with the fog you know where the fog is very much like staccato piano keys not unlike the halloween score in a lot of respects but it's its own classic piece in its own right by dint of the fact that it perfectly captures the mood of that film i just want to jump back to like and one thing the, the piano melodies not only are they kind of simple in their evocative nature but there's also room for silence and the fog that is also to its own benefit because it is a sound design um an image-driven movie one quick thing i do want to throw Carpenter himself, by his own admission, and uh, apparently Starlog in 87, said he didn't want rinky-tink-chop-suey music. That's the quote I'm finding here for Big Trouble in Little China, which is very curious because, like... We literally just tried to... We tried. (laughs) Yeah. And it's like, yes, there's the rock and roll sound, but why does it have, like, these choppy, repetitive sounds that sound... Yes, yes, I hate... I'm trying to avoid making that sound so badly because I don't have the good words to not sound like a prick about this. It's it's a, it's a uh, very I don't know it's it's it, I mean it's a fan favorite yeah I mean, I've seen him a couple of times now live and and people go nuts during that theme and I think a lot of it's just because of the cult for well because the there are those digital things. synth swells those upward swells of sound that sound like digital variations on a gong sound yeah if that well makes and any I was sense. well like, and I was gonna say those are as much as anything what we think of as yeah. the classic Carpenter score which again makes then they live all the stranger. Because They Live is a movie where you have, again, this Casio-heavy, bassy tone that follows. It's like the Mm -hmm. working man music over the first 30-odd minutes of the film. Which... Like yeah, like, which not to mention like that that harmonica, which is the right idea with I, the wrong sound. If that no, makes it any is. Sense. It's it's a harmonica that doesn't sound at all like a harmonica, which sort of loses the dramatic impact. Yeah, but eventually the they live theme, and especially with where it goes in the back half, it's very much traditional Carpenter. Yeah. Oh, it is. Yeah. I mean, because I mean that it, what you're gonna get out of that is the dum. And that's always what it is. He's always going to have that sort of spinal column or spinal fluid of the song <laughs> that's just going to be there. And it's in literally every one of his themes, even all the way up until his latter era stuff. And 
with with they live i think it does i think it gels with the the movie very well but just because it's it, it the film has a lot of western influences so yeah i mean like roddy red piper even like the way he comes into the movie is like a cowboy and and it does feel like he's going into a saloon except the saloon just happens to be this outdoor recreational area for all of la's homeless but i the thing that i i do actually think is funny is that like he even going back to assault and precinct 13 in high school, me and my buddies used to always uh, play like the the main theme for Assault when we'd be driving our cars. We wanted to act <laughs> like the goddamn gang awesome. members. But like the, there's a part in that every time we would play it, it would always cut immediately to the very soft blues part, which is like, mm-hmm. dude, dun, dun, dun. and we'd always be like, oh, no, 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 bring it back to the theme, bring it back to the theme. Because we'd be like in traffic and everybody would be looking at us being like, why is this weird, slow, somber <laughs> blues track? <laughs> so, but blues has always been a part of Carpenter's music. I mean, like, but even, he's using like inappropriate textures and inappropriate isn't wrong because he's a guy who believes in synthesizer sounds and music and kind of like he brought digital music to the forefront or at least popularized in a way that we have to give him props for but it can only take you so far when you go into the blues like I'm not trying to be elitist or draw a line, but I feel like digital sounds have no place in blues music. Uh, But like moody music or like cool melodies and themes, repetition, like that's when it works. But if you're trying to go into like uh, Asian sounding music or American blues sounding music, which is kind of the curious thing about this, Mm -hmm. he kind of shot his wand a lot with Halloween with like big boisterous sounds and keynotes. And he was able to kind of continue doing that. So maybe we're, I, I'm backpedaling clearly. Are we being too hard on him for trying to explore different vibes with his preferred method of music creation? This Casio sound, as you put it, Dom, because he's totally using a distinct sound to a certain effect. And we have to take into account that he's growing, changing and exploring new sounds. Yet at the same time, he's totally not because everybody equates it to... Stranger Things opening credits is the John Carpenter sound. Synthesizer beats, synthwave music from Drive is the John Carpenter sound. And it's very funny because when Michael and I had the opportunity to speak to him a couple weeks ago, Mm -hmm. we tried to ask him about modern composers and sort of his relationship to them. And he was immediately just like, I don't hear anyone doing the sound that I do, even though everyone is out of their way trying to ape that sound. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. He has absolutely no idea of his influence on there, which is kind of funny when he, you know, for a guy that used to talk forever about how like people weren't like, you know, he, he didn't get new respect. But I mean, he never said that, but it was always implied that like. What, what's the, the beat structure on the Halloween theme again? Like five, four or something? Yeah. Yeah. It's four, five, I think. Four, five. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. And which is apparently something really hard to learn. And I mean, that's kind of a cool credit to John Carpenter as well as like. Who the hell has the time to write, direct, and then come up with their own music? Yeah. Well, outside of playlist directors, but I, th- th- yeah, no. But on filmography, we don't talk about playlist directors. We talk about auteurs. A tour. I, I want to beat myself up just for even making a joke about that. But be that as it may, it's actually five four. Five, five four. four? All right, there cool. we go. Yeah. Which is freaking hard to do and that's something that we should give him credit for for the rest of his career because that score is so indelible so even if he takes these like weird stylistic textural sidesteps in the 1980s like cool we didn't talk about the fog enough like that's just a beautiful piano melody gorgeous, gorgeous. yeah yeah i mean it's basically a sister piece to to halloween I mean, and it, it operates on like nominal notes with optimum space in between those notes well, like it knows when to play for the right effect even when they're jump scare synth sounds 
did, did Alan Haworth work on this? Did, am I making that up or? He, uh. Because there, he... there are some like jump scare sound effects that are, I consider part of the score, I suppose, within the fog, but it's also like the piano melody. That's the thing that holds the movie together. The, the piano melody is just absolutely gorgeous. It's so dreamy and it reminds mm-hmm. me a lot of like Laurie's theme from, um, yeah. from Halloween. But yeah. I also just love those like flourishes of like sustained synths that's like yeah. like almost reminds me of like the the flight of the navigator or something like that like it, it just yeah yeah it's just that that's just like really like it's like hypnotic um and and i think like some of his best scores add that sort of hypnotism because mm-hmm. it just draws you in a little bit more um but yeah i i love the score for the fog and i think it, it's just it marries the visuals in that movie in such a beautiful way um and it's clear that it was, it was all runoff from what he was feeling from from Halloween, and for sure. I mean, they they just feel so intrinsically tied together. Just quick sidestep: Do you guys have favorite Carpenter scores? Favorite Carpenter score? Yeah. Uh, for mine, it's it's Halloween three. Halloween. Yeah. Halloween. Halloween three. Nice. The Halloween three score is my favorite. Yeah. He's doing the new Halloween, right? Yeah, it's great. Okay. I, we we got to advance for it. And really? It sounds, it sounds amazing. Okay. Yeah. No, I, I yeah. look forward to uh, for my money and not to. To, like go get off again because it's Carpenter. How can we not uh, escape from New York specifically? The bridge. Yeah, we're like, gonna... that's my favorite. So oh, the one it's like the, the yeah the, yeah. The, well, wait, no, the Duke arrives because I want a limo with chandeliers in the front hood. <laughs> I just anyway, sorry, no, I, I have to like I love the score for the fog, but I would like I would stab myself in the knee with a fork if I didn't say I love you, Escape from New York score. So no, but because I, I was just listening to that score because I the, mm-hmm. there's a jam that, that yeah I think it is the like the it's like where they it yeah. almost feels like this like sort of like funky jam like almost and, reggae yeah yes yeah, yeah. and i and i remember so when we when i spoke to him last like um or for the track by track i was like look you have a lot of great deep cuts off your albums like have you ever thought about like even just trying to do those for your live show and he's like no man they just want to hear the hits and i'm like I'm, i just want to stress <laughs> to him again like no your fans will fucking love this just you know play Lori's theme or play the myers house or yeah play like yeah. one of the deep cuts off of escape from new york people will absolutely go crazy i have for to that. say it is quietly disappointing to realize that john carpenter granted like when you're writing and directing and scoring your own movies you don't have the time to score other people's movies yeah. but that is like a favorite what if of like what if he had scored a couple of different movies in the oh 80s God, and 90s yeah. just as paying gigs or something like you could take the fog music and put that on any number of like small town dramas or like even a romantic movie with like uh, ominous overtones or something like that yeah I mean, that's what that it's 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 flexible no there's a versatility to his music that again yeah. you know a lot of composers especially in the modern era are exploring but that nobody has quite replicated in the way he has it would have yeah. been a, could you imagine the genre dream is if you had all right, so you had uh, George George Romero directing, mm-hmm. and then Carpenter doing the score with maybe like Dean Cundey doing cinematography, or uh, I'm trying to think of like someone who had signature for like a screenplay with maybe like King writing. So if they would have done Creepshow with with Carpenter uh, doing like the the score for that entire film, God, that would have been something else. Like it just. I never thought about that. You, yeah, like no, that, that's the heavy metal over. dream from a couple of years ago. Zack Snyder was going to produce a heavy metal with A-list directors like oh, David man. Fincher and Christopher Nolan or something like that. And I'm like, get Zack Snyder out of there. And I would have yeah. like, paid 50 bucks to see it. Uh, <laughs> but no, that that's kind of the weird power of Carpenter where like that brand name has its own like speculative power yeah. of its own. Yeah. And no doubt in the coming weeks before we're done here with filmography, 
will be plumbing those possibilities. You can't again. contain our enthusiasms, Dominic. We <laughs> like Carpenter en masse. Enthusiasms. 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 I like enthusiasms. En- I like enthusiasm when it's plural, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but regardless, I think that's where we're going to leave things off for this week. We'll be back next week with our third episode, Carpenter versus the Man. But until then, thank you both for joining me. Thank you to Cat Blackard, our intrepid producer here at CPN, who makes these shows happen and continues to work tirelessly around the clock. Again, you can stay tuned to Filmography's Facebook page slash Filmography Podcast, where we'll have all of our major pertinent announcements. Now me, you can find me on Twitter at Mayer. You can find all of my work on Consequences Sound Otherwise. Where can the goodly people of the internet find you, Blake? Uh, Consequence of Sound. Find me on Twitter at Ecstasy of Gobel. Uh, seeing as I had to change that after uh, some oh, we'll issues. Oh, that road. <laughs> no, yeah. Well, it's not. Long story short, if you if you find me on Twitter and if you tell me what that reference is, I'll send you a cookie. Non poisonous. You can find me also on Consequence of Sound uh, and at uh, Twitter at at Michael Rothman. Uh, that's R O F F as in French fry. M A N. And uh, also on the Losers Club, where we're going to be talking about it for the next, oh God, seven, maybe eight weeks. We just keep adding more episodes to it. And what are you up to, episode 80? We're, uh, we're at 88 now. The nice. last episode, 89. Uh, crazy 88. Week, so, yeah, crazy 88s. Um, and also, uh, we're going to be closing out Halloweenies. So we got uh, the next one up is Rob Zombies, Halloween and Halloween 2. Can't wait. Just a real upgrade from Carpenter. <laughs> Don't um, laugh. Don't laugh, Blake. I'm sorry, Halloween, uh, the most inconsistent franchise of all time. And I'm not it, complaining. It is. Oh, no, I went it to, is. No, because, like, 100%. I'm not, I'm not going to, like, hold anyone to the standards of canon. Like, you do whatever you want with your franchise. But I went to the Wikipedia and was exhausted it's, by it's Entry insane. 5. So, it's insane. Yeah. And honestly, the most cohesive, if you wanted to get out there, it's like a Nightmare on Elm Street is, is like, the one that actually somehow stays true to their canon through and yeah. through. Yeah, that's kind of funny. And then somehow Friday the 13th, which jumps all the way to outer space, is more... More cohesive than Halloween. So. Outer Space produced by Canada with David Cronenberg. And you yeah. know what? Some of us had a good time uh, <laughs> watching that. <laughs> well, takes on Jason X notwithstanding, we thank you for listening. As always, we are not anywhere close to the only CPN podcast you can enjoy at this time. There's also This Must Be the Gig, Lior Phillips' interview series with various artists, mostly musicians, but hopefully expanding out of that someday. We also have The Losers Club, our erstwhile Stephen King podcast. We have, as Rothman mentioned, Halloweenies. We also have State of the Empire, our Star Wars podcast. As always, thank you for tuning in. You can find Consequences Sound on Twitter at Consequence and Facebook slash Consequences Sound. Again, please leave us a review on iTunes, Podchaser, and wherever else you procure your podcasts. We dearly do appreciate it. Filmography is a production of the Consequence Podcast Network. Check out our expanding roster of music, film, and television podcasts at consequenceofsound.net. This show is recorded, produced, and engineered in Chicago, Illinois by me, Dominic Suzanne Mayer, and we will see you all next week. Consequence Podcast Network.